Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet Bopperai, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. I hope you all had a good weekend and are ready for some more home truths. I don't. Hi, Jess Breeden. Good morning, listeners. Um, yep, a bit more greenwashing to do today. Um, hopefully we'll do it justice. Uh, that, that is in addition to all the brainwashing that we get coming our way and all the whitewashing that we have to suffer and perhaps all the redwashing. But we'll stick to greenwashing today, perhaps. <laughs> right. Washing. Now, I, I certainly don't need to be reminded of washing. I'm the mom of two very young kids, but yeah. Back to Greenwashed. And uh, before we go on, uh, I'd like to let the listeners know we've got our texting up and going. And the new number for that is 2057. So if you think of something and you want to send us a text, it doesn't need a particular format. Just type in a short message and text it to 2057. Our email remains the same. That's inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. And thank you to all those who have been emailing in. We've been sent quite a few very useful documents to peruse between what's happening in schools and uh, eco-anxiety and bits and pieces. So as time goes on, we'll be getting more into those. But for today, gosh, there's, there's quite a bit of greenwashing that's gone on. But I think, Don, let's begin with uh, this article from the Farmers Weekly. Farmers cheer national agriculture policy details. Are you sharing those? Well, it didn't fill me with euphoria the moment I read them, and I'm thinking, hmm, what's in here? Uh, that's good. Uh, on, on reflection, I'm being a bit harsh, probably, uh, but I have been around this for so long, this sort of stuff, and you do get used to you know, the cycle of electioneering and gaming of um yeah, of of the manifesto and yeah, you know, what they're going to present in a manifesto for for farming, let alone for any sector. And I've often said, what's good for farming is good for the country. So um, perhaps they, I'm being a bit cynical and a bit tough. But for instance, when they said they want to introduce a two for one rule for the next three years for every new uh, regulation that local or central government wants to introduce, they need to uh, take away two. Now. Yeah, I was cynical at the start, and I probably still am cynical because you could just package two into one and job's done, same thing. But it is a good discipline, as is the costing of regulations. Uh, uh, but is it going to make any difference to the Wellington Beltway? Well, I don't think so, because they thrive on uh, expanding government, not reducing it. So I am I am cynical, but, you know, each political party is going to do this posturing, and um it seemed that the farmers in the Northland uh, area where they released it seemed relatively happy with it. Uh, you know, they talk about making uh, rules workable. Well, don't make the rules in the first place would be quite a good idea to start with. That would be the zero base. Don't make the rules where they're not necessary. In fact, just don't make rules. Make individuals uh, be responsible for their own actions. Don, you don't want to have James Shaw again talking about those Pakeha farmers down south not wanting any rules, do you? <laughs> uh, well, I hope to see James Shaw off, um, and so do most farmers. So, um, 
yeah, he can he can call us whatever he likes. I, the rules don't uh, should never reflect uh, ethnicity, color, or or anything like that. It's just nonsense. As far as I'm concerned, we're all equals. We're all um, private property owners, and that's what should be respected first and foremost. And no privilege given to any one sector or or you know, race. It's just nonsense. Completely so, agree. And for those who are wondering what that last wisecrack of mine was about, James Shaw. Earlier last year, it was somewhere in Northland and speaking about the Hikoi that people up there had led to their council protesting against the significant natural areas. And, you know, he spoke about the fact that, oh, we have no problem here with you guys. It's just those Pakeha farmers. And I think he was referring to Groundswell at that point down south that don't want any legislation and want to plunder as their whim takes them. So, yeah, this is the sort of leadership we have where everything must be seen through a critical race theory lens. Little wonder that our kids are being taught that in school. Well, of course, he was 1,200 miles from south, uh, kilometers from south, and so he um, perhaps felt quite safe. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Now, speaking of bureaucracy, they national's policy says establish a permanent rural regulation review board to consider every local and central government regulation affecting farmers and advise central government on solutions. Seriously? More bureaucracy is the answer? Well, certainly I didn't see anything in there that said we're going to cut the number of people um, in bureaucracy. And of course, we know that the numbers uh, in the last five years of you know, government servants, and I don't, that's not their fault. They've been given the job by the uh, by the, the government of the day and their heads of departments. But I think it's 14,000 new positions uh, in the government sector since mm. 2017. Mm. And as I said last week, when I first went to Wellington in 1998, Lambton Key was empty, but when I finished, it was packed. So now it must be shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. And, and of course, the provinces are doing a fair chunk of the paying. National also speaks about focus the definition of significant natural areas on areas that are significant by making the rules workable and clear to landowners and councils. Hey, they should have completely scrapped this policy because. Who can take better care of a, any bit of land than the one who's actually paid for it? There's no talk of any compensation if they continue to do this. We know there are property values. There's farmers whose properties have become worthless in the West Coast overnight when uh, SNAs uh, first began. They started making noises a couple of years ago. and uh, But no, there's National again talking about the same thing. What does it even mean? by making the rules workable and clear to landowners and councils. Well, that's what I was making mention of a few moments ago. Um, sorry, I didn't link it into that exact part of it, but uh, rules workable. As I said, why make the rules in the first place? Um, if, if they have such a dilemma making something stick, then there's something wrong with the policy. And clearly, uh, if the state wants to have an influence over private property, and the significant natural areas, as they call them, they should compensate. The trouble is the RMA has no compensation for takings in the public interest as a clause in it. They, they just get it for free. So that's called expropriation, in my opinion. And uh, I don't think that is 
right and a democratic country. After all, uh, on the other side of it, we're constantly being told we have to um, do treaty settlements to a certain sector. Uh, well, how about you do tra- uh, settlements to private property owners that aren't involved in the treaty? Right. Mm. Wouldn't agree more. But the bit that worries me most, John, is the one that says uh, supercharge the rural economy. And how do National propose doing that? Double the recognized seasonal employees, the RTC scheme worker cap, over five years to 38,000 per year and explore other countries entering the same scheme. It goes on to say, change the accredited employer work visas for agriculture to create a path to residency and uh, eliminate the median wage requirement, which which part I agree with. But what are they saying? 38,000 and look for other countries there and straight away give people a path to residency. There's nothing about the whole workforce we have, hundreds of thousands of Kiwis available here. Who could be working? But if you are increasing the RSE worker scheme, you are making us more dependent on foreign labor. And I can't help but remark that we don't have the infrastructure to support more mass migration. And I'm a migrant myself, so I I realize what I am saying. But we truly don't have the infrastructure. I mean, hospitals, roading. Can we really afford? The Southland Hospital is pretty much in shambles over the last week. But yeah, look, I, I don't disagree. I think um, I read that as um, worker cap over five years, 238,000 mm. per year. Mm. Um, so from 19,000, I think it is now. So, yeah, um, yeah just it's saying every year the cap's going to be lifted uh, and till it gets to 38,000. And I read the uh, migra- immigration stats the other day, 152,000 until the end of uh February 2023 in 12 months into New Zealand. And I think just under 100,000 had had left New Zealand. So there was a net migration of uh, over 50,000 people. And as you say, Jaspreet, our infrastructure's fallen to bits. Uh, our, um, our health system can't cope. Our roading system seems to be terrible. There's red cones everywhere. There's potholes everywhere. And yet we're um, saying, let's bring in more people. And I dare say uh, the next thing will be how do we fund all that? The taxes, you know, the taxes you and I pay will perhaps be be upped. Who knows? Who knows where all this ends? And this is pretty much mass migration at a time when we don't we don't have the infrastructure to support it. I know the saying goes that more migrants and suddenly there's more money coming in. But for many of these workers, they send their money home, which is fine. I have I have no problem in that but how much does that truly bolster the local economy and what are we going to do to get the people who are within New Zealand into jobs you can't keep saying that people from overseas can come and work here for a few months and that's all right but we can't have that sort of scheme that for three months people who are within New Zealand already can't go to these places, they can't be arrangements being made and they can work. Yeah, well, nothing seems fair about it. Um, certainly, I think the key point you've made, aside from this 
discussion, this point, this key point about the new people, is the people that are already in New Zealand not working. How can we, we can't sustain that stuff. Uh, if people are able-bodied and not working in jobs they just choose not to because they not don't have to, then are they on benefits or what are they on? I, I don't know. I haven't analysed that, Jaspreet, uh, but something's screwy here. And I think you told me uh, off air that I think the conditions for these new migrant workers are, are being increased or, or tightened all the time as well. And I'm not sure whether that standard is going to be higher than what local workers would get or not. I don't know, but it's it seems that no one wants to have their workers in poor quality accommodation or uh, or, or suffering. But do you think the conditions uh, that I, I think some countries are putting around their accommodation are going to be too high or too expensive and perhaps turn people off even coming or employing them? Sorry, employing them. Yeah, yeah. Because that has happened. There's a whole lot of hostels that have come in, that are bigger hostels that have been made, and the creep of compliance doesn't end. And the bigger place can afford to build all of that. But uh, the conditions that we are wanting, the sort of, I don't even talk about conditions, it's the costs that you are piling onto the primary sector, which the primary sector will can only so long absorb, ultimately they will be passed on to the consumers. And it's it's a road to, you know, it's a zero-sum game. Nobody wins. Nobody wins. And of course, the consumers um, vote with their checkbook and, or their, their pocketbook in the end. They just say, we can't have that if the price gets too high. So um, as you've mentioned before, um, price takers is what farmers are really, rather than price makers necessarily. And yeah, we don't want to whinge on about it all the time, but um, things aren't right. And I, it's not just in the rural sector. Uh, if you look at the building sector, costs are going on them all the time. Uh, increased building regulations. Who pays for that? In the end, the um, person that's building, you know, the, the consumer pays for that. So effectively, if you're building a house, all of a sudden you've got a new standard to pay for. The price goes up. Um, in the end, where does that all end? Because checkbooks do have a habit of saying, oh, or bank balances, oops, there's nothing left in here. And all of a sudden the economy tanks and uh, you have to have a, to use that term, Klaus's term, the reset. You have to have the reset. You do. Social welfare already accounts for more than a quarter of our government spending. And we seriously need to be looking at what can be done to provide decent jobs to people who are already here. There is nothing better. But we seem to think, and National seems to think, that hey, mass migration is going to be the answer. And uh, hmm, I have my doubts about that. Well, hey, I think I have my doubts about it completely as well. And of course, um, the opposition were sort of saying, uh, nothing to see here, National's policy, nothing new. Um, more more of the same old, same old. And I did notice that um, uh, Minister of Agriculture, Damien O'Connor, in, in relation to climate change, uh, he said, uh, there are those that, who see the cost of everything uh, but the value of nothing. And I thought, what a sanctimonious <laughs> comment from someone who owns nothing but okay. his words. And that's where we are with farming, and that's where we are in society, actually. Arrogance from politicians who own nothing, having the, a, 
uh, acting like dict- dictators, let alone um, control control freaks. A better word over over the um, over the citizens. So I don't know. I know I know a lot of these people, and they I know how they play politics, and I couldn't do it with a clear conscience. I couldn't do the politics with a clear conscience. I would go very red faced if I said something as arrogant as that. Ditto. Wasn't wasn't born with a diplomatic bone in my body. <laughs> talking about being born with a diplomatic bone, I think we should talk about uh, where uh, dear leader is moving to, Don. Jacinda Ardern, her plans. Wow, my goodness. It was the, it was the headline news of the week for a moment, wasn't it? Um <laughs> Getting a bit more of a bit of a position at a Harvard University and um, a few other positions. Uh, yeah, she's she's made a name for herself, and I, I dare say we've all said uh, that she'll go to the United Nations. That was the scuttlebutt. Well, she's very close, but it has been done in such a way. So tell me, how do you say that you're going to work for the United Nations without saying you're working for the United Nations? If you're Jacinda Ardern, you join as a trustee of uh, Prince William's charity, the Earthshot Prize. That's how you do it. And then when you go to the Earthshot Prize website and have a look at the global alliances they have, well, 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 C40 cities, you know, the ones pushing the smart city agendas, United Nations Environment Programme. World Wildlife Fund, World Economic Forum, even Greenpeace. Everyone who's anyone in the globalist uh, arena, they are all here. They're all here. But no, she's not working for the United Nations. She is just working for a, a charity that's going to save us from the climate crisis. Oh, the apocalypse. Yeah, the apocalypse. And look... There's nothing wrong with the ambition to, for instance, the five ambitions here, protect and restore, restore nature. Well, to what level? Uh, that's a, that's an open checkbook there. Clean our air makes good sense if you need to. Revive our oceans. Well, maybe, you know, I, I'm not big on that, but I don't know. I assume it's a good ambition. Build a waste-free world. Uh, just nonsense. There's always going to be um, waste. Uh, it's what we do with it and how we how we dispose of it, and fix our climate. Well, they cannot fix our climate, uh, but that seems to be the biggie, of course. Um, so it's all quite virtuous. And, of course, as you say, the big names are all around there. And you've often said, Jasper, just follow the money. And the money is deep as around some of these players. Oh, God. Hell yeah. Deeper so, than the oceans. <laughs> the chair of the Earthshot Prize that uh, Jacinda Ardern will be joining as one of the trustees is uh, Christiana Figueres. She has uh, been the chair since 2020, and she's a co-founder of the Global Optimism NGO and the former United Nations Climate Chief, who was responsible for the risk delivery on the Paris Agreement of Climate Change in 2015. So, Christina, I remember her immortal words that uh, communism is the best way to get uh, to mangle her words, actually. I'm absolutely murdering what she said, but it was to the effect that nothing else works for climate as well as communism does, praising China. 
It's good enough for me to hear it that way, um, Jasper. That's that's what I took out of her words. And of course, Christina Figueres has been around this this caper around climate fear for a lot longer than than ten years. I mean, it's probably thirty years. Uh, so this is this is just like uh, standard fear for her. It's her it's a day job, and she speaks consistently and concisely about it. And she's a salesperson for the climate of fear. So nothing nothing new. And of of course, our, our prime minister not only has done as um, heading there, she's also got this um, sort of job with Harvard and the uh, Berkman Klein Center as Night Tech Governance Leadership Fellow, and that's going to be around uh, censorship. If you if you really nail it down, it's all about censorship uh, and what people can and can't say and how they say it. Come on, Don. You're getting really cynical. Jacinda will focus on the study of online extremism at the law school and on building leadership and governance skills at the Kennedy School. That is all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She she is so revered around the world. I know um again, society gave her the mantle. New Zealand gave her a mantle and they revered her. And they can either um, continue to revere, which uh, is their business, or um, they can say, we're glad to be shot of her. The trouble is, um, she is now working for a global agency and has global connections that are very influential in all the stuff that we've talked about over recent weeks. And we talked about the Hydra. We talked about the malt, the, the tentacles. Uh, I need to stop using those words. I think we should talk about the web. The web, <laughs> and and of course, um, spiders with lots of uh, uh, lots of legs spinning the web. Yeah, yeah. So Christchurch call. Jacinda Ardern will be continuing her work on the Christchurch call, which was an international pledge between you know governments and various tech companies to prevent extremist and terrorist content being spread online. Her time at Harvard will include time spent studying ways to improve content standards and platform accountability for extremist content online and examine artificial intelligence governance and algorithmic harms. And the co-founder of the Berkman Klein Center, Jonathan Zitroin, professor, said it is rare and precious for a head of state to be able to immerse so deeply out here and they can't wait to welcome her there. Please keep her there. Well, I know that sounds harsh, but um, uh, she isn't the first person to uh, from New Zealand to have overseas posts and merge into the big machine of the globalists. So, uh, and she won't be the last. It's up to New Zealanders to stand tall or stop complaining. Stand tall on national uh, sovereignty or lose it because that's about where we're heading and i know that there will be people saying oh don you're just you're just pushing a, a, a barrow that's a bit we're a bit older we're a bit over that barrow stop pushing it sorry most new zealanders haven't a clue that they're losing their national sovereignty um i want new zealand to be for new zealanders uh all equals uh you know in, in, in front of the law and i don't need someone from new york or geneva uh, or any um, uh, law law um, school from the United States telling me how to operate and live, and I don't think 
most New Zealanders want that either, but they're not aware that they're being sold into this and have been for many years. This is just getting to the, well, the peak uh, peak of, of, of the century so far. This, the climate crisis is going to be, it is already is the nonstop uh, headline that we see everywhere. Jacinda, well, she'll be working on the board of the Earthshot Prize that I just mentioned, which has the ex-UN climate chief, Christina Figueras, on board. This awards five one million pound prizes every year, one million pounds each, and five of these for work providing solutions to major environmental problems. God, what a lot of hot air. That's that's all I can say. And yeah. but it's really stunning to see the alliances this organization has set in. It is not a charity by any means. It is from every big tech company to all the United Nations NGOs like Greenpeace, World Wildlife Fund, to which I think many New Zealanders have been, you know, donating. You you see this. Greenpeace has also been in news this last week about its uh, statements it's been making. I see Don Feds has uh, pushed back on one of those in mm. Canterbury on the nitrate levels in water. Yeah, I mean, that was just a vintage Greenpeace. They, they sell a story, capture the media's attention, even if it's inaccurate. They, um, they try to uh, embellish it and make it sort of look like fact. And Feds called them out on it, as, as we used to when I was around there too. You know, it's, it's vintage Greenpeace. Um, media work. But going back to this Earthshot Prize, I thought better of, of Prince William, actually. I thought he was the sensible one. But he says, the earth is at a tipping point and we face a stark choice. Either we continue as we are and irreparably damage our planet, or we remember our unique power as human beings and our continual ability to lead, innovate and problem solve. Well, Absolutely. That last bit is fantastic to lead, innovate and problem solve. That's what mankind does when there's problems. Uh, generally, they get to a point where um, they need a correction and you get people that do problem solving. It's the innovation of ideas and uh, an evolution of ideas. Sorry, that's what I mean. So he starts out at the tipping point. Well, the the language turns me off immediately at the start. And then he says all the good stuff. People can achieve great things. The next 10 years present us with one of our greatest tests, a decade of action to repair the earth. I mean, that is just fear, fact, and nonsense. But he gets away with it. So half that state, those two statements seem reasonable, and the other half are exaggeration for effect. And I don't like that fear factor um, sort of stuff. It's like you need a short, sharp shock to get you over the line. But we've had 30 years of this. And of course, in New Zealand, having I can say this having travelled a reasonable part of the world, we do live in a pretty tidy country. There's, I mean, I'd love to kick the backside of New Zealanders that throw rubbish out the window of their cars as they're going down my roads. I just see no need for any of that. But if we're going to make a difference, it's bigger than that. Um, and it is about getting the psyche of New Zealanders to realise that uh, they have to respect the property of others. So. My roadside shouldn't have any rubbish on it. It should have none, but that's not the way it is. So I take, as a person who doesn't throw rubbish out, I get really annoyed when someone like Prince William tells me to be better than I am. Um, and I don't know what more I can do, but I do know what others can do to even tidy up their own back door, which is stop putting the rubbish 
on other people's roadside. I know that seems a small thing, but you link it all into this. And I don't like the way we're all blamed for stuff by the rhetoric of these people. Um, and that goes right back to my story about private property and respect for it and uh, and the rights of the individual and responsibility of the individual. But, you know, I'm, I know I'm different, as we've talked about previously, I'm different, but I, I see you nodding. So I think um, hopefully I've got some agreement with more than me. <laughs> well, absolutely. I have got nothing to quibble about uh, on that, Don. Again, going back to the Earthshot Prize and Jay's uh, new role, uh, the Board of Trustees is really interesting. For listeners who followed us uh, over the last couple of weeks, where Don and I spoke about Vogue Financing, which, or as it's commonly called, ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Factors While Financing. Uh, the other, another trustee there on the board will be sitting along with uh, Jacinda is Tokunbo Ishmael. She is a young woman from Nigeria, Lagos, and she is, as our blurb says, an ESG investor a gender lens innovator, passionate about shared prosperity and the role of gender consciousness and inclusivity for superior investment returns. God almighty, what a word salad there is. But this pretty much says everything one needs to know. This is ESG with a person of color talking of gender, talking of inclusion, gender consciousness for superior returns. Hello. Whatever happened to free markets and letting a willing buyer and a willing seller decide whether you are going to make a dollar of profit or you're going to just sink because your idea was utter crap to begin with. Oh, no. We must look at it with a Vogue lens, sorry, an ESG lens. So these are the sort of people who are going to be sitting on this, who are sitting already on this. And uh, that's where Jacinda is going. It's going to be a really, really good fit, isn't it? A perfect fit. Um, everything fits uh, like a glove. Uh, but but you know, I sense just reading some media in recent weeks uh, the the people that are putting the agencies that are putting the pressure on uh, ESGs uh, and and compliance to ESG are starting to say eh, this is all too hard. Our shareholders are our masters not as stakeholders, as shareholders are our masters, and they're looking for a return in these um, inflationary and potentially recessionary times, uh, all this ESG stuff looks all a bit hard all of a sudden. So maybe, just maybe, it's all going to fall away, Jaspreet. Here is hoping. Fat chance. Work goes broke. Well, yeah, that's a, that's one of the statements. Interestingly, on that vein, wasn't it interesting? We've had a couple of people um, text in or email in uh, their um, definition of WOKE. Um, so keep those coming. I think that's a that's a good um, good wee competition to have. No prize at the end of it. We're just going to um, stack them up and uh, see who wins. But um, so text twenty fifty seven and give us your ideas what uh, WOKE stands for in a New Zealand sense. Because I think the word Kiwi could be in there as the K part. Yeah. Yeah. What was it? Waste of kinetic energy or Kiwi energy at one uh, point on? Uh, it was waste. We'll say waste of Kiwi energy. But, yeah, that's only one. 
yeah yeah so yeah look we'll see how all this plays out but it's um again uh you should never underestimate a person's ability or under uh, perhaps chastise it a person who has earned the right to be asked and invited as our former prime minister has uh you can't blame her for taking what she's aspired to all along being prime minister of a country is a big deal but this looks like she's heading to but like another former prime minister helen clark an even bigger status in the world of um globalism completely or globalists sorry right talking of uh everything woke going broke there's a few who are going to be going broke because I haven't seen much news about this, but the second round of the better off funding package has been pulled. So in return for the theft of your water assets for worth of about 100 billion plus of water assets, the center government promised councils, I think it was $2.5 billion in return. Round one of the funding was made available late last year or earlier this year, depending on where you were. And many councils, in fact, most of them would be counting or had been counting on a second tranche of $1.5 billion spread over the country in mid-2024. So last week, when they did the reset of three waters, what are they calling it now? Affordable affordable waters. So the government has quietly just said that, oh, that $1.5 billion, it ain't coming. It was to be the second tranche. So what they have effectively, right, I have the figures now. So the total the government was going to give was $2 billion spread over two tranches, half a billion already given, another one and a half to come. Well, that is not coming. Talk about being robbed twice. Uh, well, I've got a different view to you, Jaspreet. Um, the first 500 million shouldn't have come either. And the next 1.5 million, I'm pleased it's cancelled because uh, actually um, local authorities should be looking after their local authority and using the tools available to manage their assets uh, wisely and borrowing as, it, as they need to um, maintain uh, and upgrade the likes of water assets. That they haven't over all the country, and yet they have in some well-managed councils, uh, seems like, why are we all in the same pot? So start with ground zero, start at zero, and then say, is it fair? And it, it was never fair to give handouts to councils. Um, Bribes. Yeah, okay, you said it better than no, me. No, I and, think and, what the term was, the media used the term sweetener. Let's be really so, politically correct. All right, a sweetener. Because I've got this view, and you've heard it before, that councils used to have a remit to look after the core infrastructure first and foremost, but they seem to have managed to um, push themselves into all manner of other things like economic development, like uh, giving grants to, to all sorts of things that aren't their remit. And they seem to have said, look, we'll still rate people um at at a level but we'll underinvest in core infrastructure and one day we might get the wider taxpayer to pick up the tab 
I find that abhorrent. Um, in Southland, as you talk about how the bridges aren't being funded, there is no reason that the bridges shouldn't have been maintained, aside from the local authorities, in my opinion, spraying themselves over all sorts of stuff they chose to do instead of looking after the bridges up front. Now, I know they can hide behind the the, the funding um, regimes around, it's called the financial assistance rate for roading and things like that. But, you know, if you've got a lobby and you need to work on a, a principle that says we're looking out for our province, uh, all I ever heard from mayors in the past was, oh, Wellington doesn't, you know, they're only going to fund it to sort of 56% or something out of the hypothecated um, fuel revenues. Uh, sorry, not hypothecated, that's not true, out of out of uh, fuel taxes and the like. I think it is supposed to be fully invested back in roading, fuel taxes and road user charges. And so I just, I'm mystified why, for when it comes to any other part of the infrastructure, that uh, that local authorities need to have their hand out. So it is a bribe, as you say. And so what was the reason for Three Waters in the first place? Um, it's, it I seemed used to... to think that it began from Hablock, not one yes. water yes. uh, incident on council, not by anybody private, which got morphed into we need water reforms, which got morphed into we need equity, we need Treaty of Waitangi, we need co-governance to this massive, massive asset grab of assets purchased, I mean, funded by ratepayers over generations to now, here we are, let's take them off and give you peanuts in return. But you were talking about, Don, the council spraying them, you know, going well beyond their brief, say, rubbish roading and all. Thus, 2019, you're probably aware, when the well-beings were reinstated into the local government brief. So this was about mid-May 2019, and the local government community well-being amendment bill was passed. And it bought into the remit of local government four things, social, economic, environmental, and environmental and cultural well-beings. Well, I am of the opinion that if we can't manage our roads, there is no way my community should be handing over there any sort of well-being to us. But hey, this was mandated in, this came in. Now, suddenly, if you look at those four things, social, economic, environmental and cultural well-being done, there is precious little that would not fit neatly, as they say, uh, neatly dovetail into one of these four <laughs> things, isn't it? And that's where it completely went bonkers. Suddenly we need uh, XYZ painting or a certain artifact or a certain mural or open spaces programs at councils to activate our open spaces or all of this uh, sort of nonsense, but yet, like you said, in Southland, we are having to close bridges because we can't afford to fund them. And then they tell us connected communities is very essential. And it had the goals to talk about, to us about emissions. Well, the farmer who came to Southland District Council and spoke about the fact that they'd have to do an extra 15 kilometers because their farms on both sides of the road and now they're being cut off. It's not helping their emissions or their social, cultural well-being, or connected communities. And yet, on it goes. But tell us tomorrow to fund something else, and we'll suddenly find the money, because, hey, it'll come from some of the other coffers with a gift tag on it that this is what it's meant for. Yep. And it's 
this culture has grown like topsy since uh, the power of general competence was given to local authorities uh, in 2002, I think it was. And it meant that local authorities could spray themselves wider and further and slowly um, expand their workforce and their, their empire. And of course, the chickens are coming home to roost. I want them to go back to their core business and um, and then uh, you know cut out all that flaky stuff at this at the edges. It makes no sense uh, to me. But uh, of course, I'm the old dinosaur, and um, you know this is the new way. I mean, as one young scribe in the Farmers Weekly wrote, um, "Get out of the way, old guys. The young people are coming through, and we know best. You know, let the young people innovate." Well, sorry. You actually have to uh, earn a, earn uh, the right to innovate, and the way you do that is you um, you earn some uh, some revenue somewhere. Um, I think it's arrogant when people say, um, "Get out of the way, uh, let new new blood control all this stuff." Uh, everything costs; someone's got to pay for it. And in regional New Zealand, uh, we know it's the farmland that generally pays. The owners of farmland pay the lion's share of, for instance, the roading rate in Southland. And on 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 that vein, um, there was a report done about 2004 from memory, and it said, and this will surprise you, um, farming isn't the dominant road user in the South. Now, you might think about that. Farming is not the dominant road user in the South. Industry and commerce is. So guess what? Industry, meaning the trucking firms, uh, the, the milk tankers, the, the uh, tourism buses, um, they're the dominant you know, road users in the South. It's not a farm that's the dominant road user in the South. Farms pay for the access to that road using uh, industry and commercial businesses. And yet farms are being told they have to pay the lion's share of the roading rate because the processing companies don't want to, of course. It's all, it all it's too complex for them. And maybe it's the right way. I don't know. I, I'm not going to debate that today. But um, it, it had me thinking a way back then. And gee, when we tried to tell the district council that you're now on that very story, they prevaricated and just pushed it away. We did it year in, year out for probably a good three or four years. And no way did they want that story. It would have meant your funding policy was turned on its head. Mm-hmm. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> Well, going back to the fact that this funding was given, $2 billion, of which just half a billion, 500 million came through. And LGNZ, which is a local government in New Zealand, the, I'd say the club to which councils pay an annual membership fee to belong to, close to 4 million of New Zealand's rates goes to fund this particular body. I think of it like the Dairy NZ. For us farmers, LGNZ is like that. It is supposed to speak up for councils at, you know, in the halls of a part in the corridors of Wellington. And the website said that, you know, we have negotiated this. And because the fact that we have negotiated, we have given away an asset of yours. We signed an agreement with the Crown to drum up support for Three Waters before any sort of public debate discussion dialogue was initiated we've got you this money and this money comes with no strings attached well 
the three waters application form for the better of funding on the Department of Internal Affairs website shows the strings that were attached. The money had to go to sort of initiatives which supported local placemaking, improvements in community well-being, transition to a sustainable and low-emissions economy, including by building resilience to climate change and natural hazards. And then the paper went on to give examples on how to identify which initiatives would meet the criteria. They said public transport improvements like replace bus fleet with electric buses, increased frequency of services at busy times, new coastal placemaking initiatives and open-air park, and digital automation programs, EV Maori liaison programs, and all of that. This is where this money went. It wasn't, I I mean, Southland Council got a few million dollars. I wish we had been given that. If we were, I mean, ideally it shouldn't have happened, but if we were given that, I wish it had been completely condition-free and we could have made some bridges down instead of closing them down. 100%. The lifeblood of Southland is the moving of produce from farms, as I said, through using vehicles that have wheels that have to cross bridges um, to take the product out. Uh, putting bridges and having good roads in Southland is fundamental to this economy. And so you're absolutely right. Uh, I, where did it all go? Uh, has it all gone? I mean, I shouldn't ask you that because it's not fair. Um, it compromises I'm, I'm, you. I'm just- I'm just looking at the publicly available mm. uh, information, Don, because this money, councils have used it. Many councils, I'm looking at Viper Council and Waikero, and it's been used on feasibility studies of a variety of things from cycle tracks to libraries to museums and whatnot. That's mm. where this money has gone. In an inflationary environment, that's where this money has gone. It has enriched certain consultants, I would say right now, because it's just the feasibility aspect. And now that money is sunk. So if you're waiting for round two, what's going to happen? Either you say goodbye to those millions evolved, half a billion that is a country we've already spent. In some cases, the first tranche would have been enough to you know, complete the project. But in many cases, there would have been councils that were counting on that to finish up the job. So what do they do? Do they forget the money they've already spent, sunk cost, forget it? Or do they put their hand out to the ratepayers and ask for more to complete what they have already set in motion? Which is why I say we've been rocked twice now. And no doubt the second is what the what the promoters will, you know, the councils will want to do, because as you say, they may have some projects on the way that then they're going to be have, have a shortfall. So they will put their hand out again. I still think it has been a misguided policy from day one. Of course, all of this was muddied by a co-governance story as well, and we haven't even talked about co-governance. Is that still part of this um, next uh, next idea uh, that Kieran McAnulty has put out? Is it still being talked about, co-governance? Because um, Kieran, the Minister for Local Government, he has said he's a... Um, uh, uh, a socialist. That's his. That's his. Um, that's his reason for being. And you know, whether you like it or not, if he's a socialist and he's saying that co-governance is good, he's more than a socialist. Um, it 
if you're not going to have one person, one vote around a council table and you're not all elected under the same premise, then we've got big problems. And around the uh, the boards of these 10 entities now, um, if they're going to be uh, dominated by Maori votes, um, it just makes no sense. It's not a democracy. It's not a democracy. No, it's not. It is not. And I'm looking at Christchurch City Council. I'm looking at what's publicly available on their website where they spent their uh, better off funding. And uh, it's pretty interesting. Significantly increasing trees. Uh, indicative cost, $6.9 million over five years. Uh, removing barriers to participation. They've spent 200000 on a one-year trial to work in partnership with relevant organizations to reduce barriers of participation in swimming. Reduce barriers. I, you know, Don, English is my third language. Please decipher for me. What does that word soup, word soup even mean? I don't know, and I'd rather segue into something different. <laughs> that, that gotcha. Jasper loves that word segue. She's oh, been she's big into dovetailing and segueing at the moment. <laughs> oh God. I, yeah, I don't so know. this is I mean, they've spent two hundred thousand of that to reduce barriers to participation in swimming. God almighty. Uh they've talking of two million to fast track travel planning to all one forty five schools. And target neighborhoods to complement reduced speed limits and develop a wider community behavior change program oh. to enable more sustainable travel choices. So, yeah, nudge nudge units here to spend yeah. that. And partnering with Vaka Kotahi, NZTA to you and me, and local businesses in a cost share model to incentivize use of active travel. Uh, Smart cities, here we come. Smart cities, here we come. Yeah, but that's that's the sort of thing. Partner with local organizations to support local initiatives. Well, I, there's not enough there for me to comment, but it includes a focus on local actions to include climate resilience and make available discretionary funding to support future development of activities, including multicultural recreation. I'm old enough and recreation was just recreational. What is multicultural recreation? Uh, I have no idea what that can mean, uh, Jaspreet. Um, it seems like separatism. You know, you have to have uh, different things for different ethnicities. That just makes no sense to me. I mean, let's say it's a kid, uh, a children's um, playground. Do different <laughs> ethnicity children require a different roundabout or a different swing? Of course they don't. Uh, it just makes no sense. Um, but you know, I will have clutched the wrong end of the straw here for sure. I'm just, um, I'm just that old white guy. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I read that um, Fed Farmers put out a um, bit of a, bit of a um, news brief on this. And they said the draft review makes 29 recommendations centered around five categories, where it is argued shifts are required: strengthen local democracy. Well, they're doing everything to weaken it by co-governance type thinking. A focus on well-being. Well. That's an open checkbook. Uh, authentic relationships with Hapu, Iwi, and Maori um, in a country that I don't believe separatism should be encouraged. That seems to be encouraging sort of separatism. I mean, authentic relationships. I thought that's what we all have with each other. More equitable funding. Well, feds can't argue with that. Uh, 
uh, because that's what we've always said, even in my time, funding policy was the key to reforms of local government. And then said, then said a genuine partnership between central and local government. Well, I'm not quite sure what that looks like, but it does in terms of roading and the bridging sort of infrastructure, it does mean getting a fair shake of the stick out of the out of the collection of uh, petrol, uh, out of fuel taxes and road user charges. And I'm not sure the South for its um, provision of what, 8%, at least maybe 9% of the nation's uh, primary industry exports and another 6% from a smelter, I don't think we get a fair shake of the stick for a population of 100,000 trying to hold uh, that level of export earnings for the country together. Uh, so, you know, Fed Farmers um, paper here, I think it looks pretty good. And it looks, you know, it looks like pretty much the same as what it would have been had I been in Feds 15 years ago, because in 2007, I mean, local governments had review after review. Local government uh, ministry is, and the minister of local government, I don't know, we must have had 10 in the last 10 years. It's like a poisonous a poison chalice. You know, uh, anyone that gets the ministry uh, to be the minister over, um, they seem to move on through fairly quickly. Maybe that's part of the caper. Um, don't let anyone get in the hot seat for too long because it, it might actually do something useful. Cynical. Cynical, I know, but we've had so many documents that talk about local government reform. When I was around, we had what was called the Shand Report, and then Rodney Hyde did another first principles review of local government funding. All these reports will be sitting on the shelves gathering dust because no one wants to touch local government because it is the most, the local government managers are in control of a fairly big chunk of the New Zealand action, and they are not wanting to have anyone. Um, tackle their, their, their yeah, their fiefdoms. Yeah, there you go. Good word, good word. I mean, it's, it's nothing changed since when I was around, but I don't know. It's it's interesting that we talk about all this stuff annually at local authority planning times, and the same people come out and they do this submissions. And as I said last week, submissions are dumb word because that is meaning that you're basically given in before you start and uh nothing changes i mean i i, I despair that when uh, again talking about history with me i think we used to do the submission to about 60 or 70 councils uh including the, re the regional councils and we were proud of that what was our achievement some years we had the odd win that say had had savings for farming versus the rest you know, it was appropriated uh, more correctly, the, the cost structures. But most years, there wasn't a lot of gain out of it. And so it's like it's untouchable. Uh, and until we do have that local government funding reform, where the users of a particular service should be charged fully for that service, and if you can't define the user, that should be shared equally over the ratepayer base. Um, until there's something like that in place, we're going to have these annual bun fights. And we shouldn't have to have them. I mean, I, I'm different to most people as well um, in that I actually like GST as a tax. Others would say it, uh, as if you're going to have a tax, GST is a good tax because it's on consumption. If you don't, don't buy stuff, you don't pay GST. Uh, so those of us that consume more than others pay more. 
but it's called a regressive tax and it affects the um the more disadvantaged end of um the community uh so what did we do we said well let's have a share of the gst generated in the region back to the region i see that's being talked about a bit more now uh to try and offset local authority costs uh yeah i think that's probably a useful thing but at the end we've just got to i think the key of all this is funding policy um fair governance no no co-governance and uh and, and user charges and user charges you were talking about separatism don and that's that's something that really gets my goat too but now moving to something that news headlines uh, have been talking about older people pensioners this article caught my eye struggling pensioners tell of sitting in dark not flushing to save money where the where is separatism going to be in this when that particular category of our society is being affected does race really matter every single person is right now hurting some are more you know exposed than others but we are talking of people in the twilight of their lives who most of them have worked all their lives paid tax and are now essentially being robbed of their dignity uh, and that was my my words you've just stolen my word dignity i think um people should be able to live with dignity in their senior year or any year let alone their senior years and uh yeah i did watch the television program about that and you do feel uh for those people that are doing it hard now i i look back at my mother i shouldn't do this but she was uh as frugal as can be even though she didn't have to be she never stopped being frugal she wouldn't she wouldn't keep two bars on the heater on if one would just do it sort of thing or she she'd have the fire going and cutting and in into her late 80s she was cutting firewood into the house because you know her husband had passed away um yeah you do wonder uh the line and all this but look and in, in saying that not everybody has the same ability to to uh to provide for themselves let alone care for themselves and when you see elderly people unable to care for themselves as well in the health sense you know even sanitary sense that's even worse uh, the ones i saw on tv they had they were still holding their dignity i was you know it was it was it was heart wrenching but they were holding their dignity together and i felt for them but um i'm sure there was hundreds of others who would have been like me just um concerned that new zealand's got to this this, this becomes... is after, sorry this is after 5 years of of um a kind caring um regime yeah yeah absolutely this week earlier this week i was at council at a workshop and i had said literally the same thing that we need to remember whatever we are doing we are a council that can't afford bridges and we have had major rate rises in you know areas around where i live and i said people are hurting we have massive pine forestry going up around us and i mentioned the fact there in council so i have no qualms about advocating here that you know i when i head into my small four square that i have here i've sometimes more often now seeing people we have old age homes here 
come and just get very little. And in my mind, I'm thinking that it's hard for you mobility-wise to come here. You would rather do one shop than come, but that's probably all you can afford. So this, this I spoke about this at council. This was Wednesday. And as I was heading back into town, uh, back to Tuatapri's, decided to stop at Countdown to pick up something because out here we have a much smaller grocery store. And uh, in front of me was an older lady. It was a couple, actually. They'd be both in their mid-70s. And a very small, very small uh, shopping basket was what they were paying for. And again, they both had mobility issues. And I was thinking, you know, that I just spoke about this 45 minutes ago at council. And here I am seeing it yet again in front of our eyes. And this article on One News website just says that unlike, you know, many of this, the older people are struggling. For some, it is food. A 69-year-old saying, I survive mostly on two-minute noodles. The days of having veggies every day is gone. Others struggle to pay for water. I don't flush my toilet, a 76-year-old path. It saves about $10 or $12 a month. There are other stories of sacrifice from many other seniors who spoke to Sunday. While others suffer in silence, 66-year-old Natalie Lambert invited us into a home. If I don't say it now, she said, I would regret it for the rest of my life. She has had to retire early due to health issues. With the price of groceries increasing, she often gets by on one meal a day. When it's on the tough week, when you've got your power and your water rates all on the same week and your rent going out, that's all I can do. And God Almighty, I had someone last year when the campaigning for the local body elections was going on and on, and an older person, she said to me, she says, it's coming to a stage where I will need to make a choice, just breathe whether I eat less or I heat less or maybe both. And that's where yes. we're heading to. And we are have all that talk about more sustainable food and regenerative and farming and all of this. Let's electrify. Let's get more EVs. And it beggars belief. What are we doing to our own country? We are not looking after our own backyard. Yeah, hundred percent. And 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 ex guest is going to talk about um, some of this stuff and why it's getting to uh, to the pointy end of cost structures, really. But you know, there's nothing unique and new about this, really. Um, every generation there is struggle street, and uh, but but it is our right. Uh, sorry, it's our duty to make sure that people that are living in New Zealand are looked out for. Uh, they don't need a handout all the time. They just need a hand up for the most genuine cases. Uh, what what I do um, rail against is the handout mentality. And um, those people that were on TV um, last week, they weren't there for handouts. They were there for a hand up, and they were desperate. So yeah, we're 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 playing this virtuous game on everything uh, from climate to um, free speech to or you name what, whatever, we're, we're playing all these cards that seem to be, as the former Prime Minister said, very nice, just, kind, all those sort of words, but they have de de delivered us already to an opposite paradigm. And, you know, that's a clear message to me that socialism and the push toward it doesn't work and it's not working for New Zealanders. 
they keep saying done it wasn't done well the last time they're going to do it better they're going to do socialism better this time around karen mcnulty certainly is well look look and around the world where socialism's been done better um and more oppressively than it is here um yeah the outcomes aren't aren't to be repeated on here but they're not pleasant they are they are not pleasant and every yeah. time i think socialism i know you said unpleasant but um, i am the word that comes to my head is democide which referred to different ways in which governments were responsible for their own citizens losing mm-hmm. their lives mm-hmm. and you know university of hawaii has this whole paper by this professor rj ramel who spoke about the fact that this is never spoken about war skilled people but democide be it in vietnam be it in africa be it in russia it killed over 100 million people in the last century and rwanda rwanda cambodia uh it just it's unbelievable now i agree that there is socialism um and there's extreme socialism mm. uh and communism and so i know france is sort of often termed a socialist country and yet i've been to france and uh you don't feel it's a socialist country but and then again i don't live there 365 um i don't think that's what we're talking about we're talking about our oppressive oppressive uh uh regimes that are watching your every move and that's that's really communism and of course with ai and the like uh and and i see an invercargill that's talking about spending a million dollars on security around invercargill cameras and i'm thinking my goodness is that what we've come to um yeah we 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 want security over our property and we want to catch the crims on the streets that are damaging cars and and local authority sort of pavements and and shop windows we should never have any of this in a in a respectful society you wouldn't have any need to put up any cameras for security because people would respect the property of others as i was brought up to do you never ever damage the property of anybody else but because that's not the main uh, psyche in our country today we put up cameras at huge cost and i think i saw christchurch has got um, mass coverage with security cameras now as well so yeah we've bought into this jasprit it's not it's not the world that i liked me neither don and that's why we are here and i i think many of the ones who have gone along with this for the, over the past you know half a decade now 5 6 years of this are also now pushing back case in point this article from the spin off this morning uh, let them eat tinned fish and dried lentils this is interesting they said uh, this is the excerpt from a weekly newsletter the boil up <laughs> in response to rising food prices the media is awash with budget food ideas and thrifty meal inspiration however the advice is not always well received so tv ends at breakfast got a budget expert and a nutritionist side by side sitting behind a rather grim pile made up of two carrots a sack of palm's rolled oats two bags of dried pulses half a cabbage sardines tofu kidney beans no red meat i see last week and they probably weren't looking for a negative response from viewers but that's what happened 
it's knowing how to the swap and you know making do with alternatives and how to cook well <laughs> they were barraged with people's comments on social media because people are fed up of this ideology it only goes so far and many it seems say spin off are tired of being served budgetsies and thrifty supermarket alternatives good on them for voicing their opinion well actually i say tongue and cheek um they were close <laughs> to right if they'd only taken out the tofu i'd have been happy um because <laughs> i actually don't mind the rest of it but that's just me mm. um having your ideals foisted and and you know i accept that these um are, are relatively low cost and still really tasty no mm. issue with that but yeah this virtuous nonsense coming at people um yeah it it's just the thin end of the wedge we how many more times i mean everything is fashionable it seems uh so at the moment it'll be fashionable to have ultra low cost uh you know down to the micro management of the last baked bean that you can put the kidney bean that you can put in your lentil soup i mean it, i don't know look I, i'm not a, i'm not a offended by it jasper it's just what it is <laughs> um but i find it a little humorous as well Ditto. you know the fact the social media commentary they were certainly not what they expected and that that more and more of that is what's going to happen because there's only so much people can take yeah and you know uh it is again i go back to my mum uh yes crazy as used to wind her family up she could make um food go a long long way the leftovers were leftovers after leftovers and uh i have to say my kids don't do leftovers it's just a different different generation and uh, maybe they will go have to go back and start looking at leftovers and because we've got refrigerators you go and spend 2500 bucks on a new fridge and you don't uh don't have leftovers on it well i'm sorry you do need to have them in there and uh and that's where resourcefulness comes from so there's the key word uh as crazy and as embarrassing as some of my mother's ideas were she was resourceful to the end never wasted anything and we it didn't do me any um it wasn't like i'm a, a sickly kid or something it didn't happen that way mm but she did used to embarrass us because man she could get um the last vestige out of a um shoulder of lamb or something <laughs> almost reconstituted lamb right i i would like to think that i i um i make things go you know i don't stretch them endlessly but yeah my kids do do leftovers and they and you know living out in the sticks sometimes you do have to be creative occasionally and uh, i see no harm in that they're probably learning a lesson or two and uh, long may it continue yes exactly i mean i think the key word out of all that is um teaching your family to be resourceful uh with what they've got and uh, and these people that were on television i sensed they had been really resourceful and got to the end of their tether um there will be a bigger story in behind it there could have been some debt record debt payment systems going on there for something that had happened to them like a for instance a trip to a doctor or a, you know something that had made them be even more short of cash than they might have otherwise been but yeah being resourceful is is what gets people through the hard times absolutely uh 
And for listeners, may I remind you once again, our texting number for any messages you might have is 2057. Our email is inbox at the rate reality radio. And please keep those messages coming. We will also today, Don, would you introduce uh, the guest we'll be having? Well, yes, we've got Brian Leyland, who's a well-known New Zealand writer on, uh, to the say, the New Zealand Herald and other papers um, on electricity and energy. And of course, Brian's, uh, I think he's now in his mid-80s, but he's been a long-time uh, advocate for hydro and uh, uh, all sorts of um, bright ideas in the electricity sector. He questions the electricity market that we're all um, are part of when we pay our bill. So, uh yeah, good that we've got him on, and um, he also has his ideas on climate change, of course. So, yeah, great to have, to have Brian on, and um, and yeah, it's been it's been a great show, Jasper. I, I hope we uh, hope our listeners are enthralled by our fireside chat. Absolutely, and for anyone who has missed last week's show, I would recommend if you could go back and have a listen to the replay of especially Tom DeWeese's show, because I, I thought he was black deficient. Tom DeWeese is from Virginia, USA. He's been fighting the Agenda 2030, which I know uh, Grant Robertson says is a big conspiracy that has been debunked, but we are continuing about that on Reality Check Radio. Nonetheless, because we believe in keeping it real as does Tom DeWeese. And we had the privilege of chat with, chatting with him last week for nearly 90 minutes. And what that man doesn't know about Agenda 2030, I think it's not worth knowing. He's done the yards for decades now, and it's really well worth a listen. And it's interesting, Jasper, on, on that vein, um, when you look at social media columns, there is hundreds of people who know about this stuff. And so I think the tide is turning, uh, to be honest, because a couple of years ago, you would not have dared, people like you and me and, and, other, and others we know, poke our nose up and you get it chopped off that you were crazy. Um, now there is, um, let's say, a mass formation happening. Um, and... Uh, I think that's a good thing because we didn't talk about it for so long. Uh, and now that people are starting to wise up to the wider globalist agenda, I think uh, we are going to have some restoration of national pride. Completely. I will give credit to Voices for Freedom also on this one. It was a couple of years ago that I and uh, my mate Jill Booth started doing the UN Agenda's webinars every fortnight. And... You know, at that time, Don, my one really didn't know which way this was going to head. And over the two years that we did them, or was it close to 18 months, as time went on, I started looking at comments and Facebook messages that I was getting. And more particularly, I started seeing at the comments people were leaving on various MPs pages. And slowly but surely, you see people now talking sustainability. And is it what is it exactly? Net zero, smart cities. This has entered common uh, vocabulary now, and you can see people now literally spotting stuff. And I, I should also say that I need to apologize. I am currently 
I have close to 300 unread Facebook messages that people send me information and I'm very grateful for every single one of them, but I'm honestly chasing my tail and I never quite seem to catch up with them these days. But people also send me stuff that is happening in their neck of the woods and we can see the agenda in full swing, no matter what part of the country you're living in now. And, and listeners, I can say that Jaspreet, as I've said before, is the most unbelievable um, reader. She is um, doing God's work and reading the 2,600-page AR6 report from the International Panel on Climate Change. Now, I can barely read the summary report. Um, and Jaspreet's reading 2,600. Uh, that takes some doing, and it takes some stamina. It takes more than a lentil and fish soup. <laughs> it sure does. It takes endless coffees and the occasional salve to get me through that dawn. But thank you for your kind words. I've only gone through 1,600. I still have a 1,000 pages to read. But God, when you start seeing how United Nations is itself washing its own hands of some of the models it's pushing by saying it has no confidence that if this happens or if we reduce emissions, the temperature might fall in the same uh, way that if we increase, it might increase. Oh, we have low confidence on that scenario. We're not quite sure what the temperature will do. If you reduce emissions, but let's do it nonetheless. Almost sounds like COVID. Get the shot. We're not quite sure what it may do. It's probably not going to stop infection or transmission, but let's see. Oh, and, and linking it right back into your local government stuff, um, using this um, uh, shared socioeconomic pathway uh, of 8.5, which used to be called sort of similar to an, uh, a representative concentration pathway of 8.5. They're not quite the same, I gather, but um, that's the most extreme end of uh, risk about global warming. The IPCC says it's nothing like that now. In fact, it's about half what they uh, originally said, and yet local authorities around New Zealand are um, still designing their systems for their local resilience at 8.5. It is abhorrent that anyone is still modelling that. Uh, and I think uh, Brian Leyland will allude to that in his, his discussion. Yes. And at that stage, I think it's time for us. Uh, we should take a break, Don. And we'll be back with you in a couple of minutes, uh, introducing our guest. And we'll be talking about the state of power and electrification in the country. And... Uh, where should be spending the 500 we should be spending the 500 billion dollars that they seem to think we should spend on solar and wind and what have you so thank you for bearing with us and we'll catch up with you in a couple of minutes Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR Reality Check Radio Welcome back to Greenwash with me, Jasprit Boparai, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. For viewers who want to send us some feedback, here's a reminder. There's two ways you can get in touch with us. Feel free to email us at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. And we now have a texting service. Please text, and it doesn't matter what format you use, just send your text to 2057. That's 2057 for your texts. And we are very excited, Don and I, to have uh, an amazing guest here today with a wealth of experience. And I will let Don make the introductions. Don. Yeah, well, thanks, Jess Breed. It's a pleasure uh, to introduce to you Brian Leyland, um, a 
mechanical and electrical engineer and a whole lot of other things. Um, and Brian is, uh, yeah, he's got a wealth of knowledge, 65 years in his industry. Uh, his cadetship with the Auckland Power Board started in 1957, the year I was born. So um, I'm going to let uh, Brian introduce himself from that point. 66 years in the industry uh, is some significant uh, experience, and we need to hear about it from the get-go. So, Brian, the floor is yours. I'd rel- welcome to Reality Check Radio, Greenwashed. Uh, thank you, John, and thank you, Jasper. Uh, well, I served as a cadet in the Auckland Power Board, realised that I need to get out pretty quick, went on a yacht to Tahiti, went on a sailing ship to uh, uh, <coughs> Los Angeles, and then wandered around the world from England and other places, finished up in Mauritius, Cyprus, West Africa, and finally Malaysia. On the way, I picked up a wife in Sierra Leone, a volunteer teacher. I reckon I was very lucky. Anyway, when I came back to New Zealand, I worked for a consultant for a few years, then set up in business mainly on small hydropower, but also in power systems. And we did a number of studies on that. But then about 25 years ago, I believed in global warming. And uh, then I started thinking because the people who thought it was terribly dangerous didn't like nuclear power, which I already knew was probably the best way of reducing emissions of carbon dioxide. So I became a bit suspicious. So I started doing a bit of research and came to the conclusion that uh, the evidence supporting dangerous man-made global warming is very weak indeed. In fact, I've been trying to find convincing evidence for about 20 years and failed. Um, On the power system side, my wife and I are majority owners in a small hydro scheme, which makes heaps of money out of our electricity market, which I believe is very completely misconceived and is doomed to bring us high prices and shortages. And it's just built into the to the way it is put together. And if we want what we used to have, which was low prices and a reliable supply, we need to change the electricity market. Right. Well, we're going to get into that in a bit more. Interestingly, um, I have met Brian once in my life, and I think it was a drinks function in Parliament about 2008. But I have come across his name several times in the last 10 or 15 years as well, including uh, when I was part of a group that bought the Anafanua Dam in Bay of Plenty, and your nameplate is there. Yes. So how many of those sort of projects did you do? About 30. Yeah, about 30. I mean, mean, (laughs) um, probably 10 or 15 from you and and the rest been involved with an upgrading or rescuing them from disaster or things like that. So that's not just in New Zealand, that's in in Africa and countries as well, or because I've noted you travel to Africa quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I work on mainly on bigger schemes in Africa and overseas. I work on bigger schemes. But my background in small schemes is extremely valuable. Yeah, well, uh, I certainly know that that dam's still working as as well as it ever did. So uh, mm. 
just keeping the, the turbines running is um, half the battle, and they seem to run sweetly, so that's a good thing. Um, yeah, no, that was, that was a good scheme, considering our lack of long-term experience. We did pretty well, I thought. <laughs> so so the scheme you uh, own yourself and your wife, is that a run-of-river scheme, or what is pretty that? Pretty well. It's, it's based on a small dam that was put in in 1922. So we just uh, rebuilt the old, wouldn't rebuild the old school, we built a whole new scheme based on the old dam. Right. Because it's interesting, uh, about the early 90s, there's a scheme in Southland called the Monowai um, Dam, mm. and everyone told us uh, that it was had it and never going mm. to need in masses of uh, reinvestment. Well, it's it has had that reinvestment, to be fair, mm. and several owners since, uh, but it's churning out electricity just fine. Uh, I'm sure it and, is. Making heaps so, of money. <laughs> so the hydro schemes uh, we put in place years ago uh, are still earning or churning well for New Zealand, yeah. uh, but it's now so hard to create new hydro developments. Is that is that a fair it's comment? Quite, it's quite difficult. And if the new RMA comes into force as it is now, it will be impossible because what they want to do is limit the water rights to 10 years. And hydropower is a long-term investment. And if you know you could be shut down in 10 years' time, you don't even start because it's going to take at least two years to build You've got eight years to recover your investment. You can't do it. And in our case, our scheme is now 20 years old, but soon we might have to replace the penstocks, maybe in 10 or 20 years. But we can't afford to replace the penstocks on the basis that we may be shut down in, in 10 years. So it's going to stop all new development and stop reinvestment on existing schemes. Sure, you've got that sunk investment you got the sunk investment and you need a return on it. So um, who can who can blame you? If uncertainty is around the corner, why would you? Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, something that might puzzle our listeners is, yeah, you talk about run of river, mm-hmm. but rivers have a f- habit of silting up, as we've sort of seen in recent months. How do you flush out or keep clean the uh, entranceway to a, um, to a run of river uh, hydro scheme? With difficulty. And I've written a couple of papers on how important it is to provide for the scour outlets beneath the power intakes to take the gravel away. But most dams do not have it, and sooner or later they're going to be in trouble. When I was in America a few months ago, they said they've got a lot of dams which are getting close to that situation, and they do not have any way of scouring up the silt from beneath the power intakes. So a major so, problem. So if it were... Uh, Coming to my area, uh, we've got the Clutha schemes. Um, but the Roxburgh Dam and the Clyde Dam have uh, flushing ports on them. To- yes, they do. And at Roxburgh, they have to lower the lake level to scour the sediment downstream every time it floods. Right. There's effectively right. no storage at Roxburgh at all now. And as soon as it floods, they've got to get rid of it quick to stop the silt building up anymore. Oh my goodness! Um, I had heard rumours of that. Um, so, what's the remedy? Uh, does does Roxburgh just become slowly less useful, or it's, not? It's in a stable situation at the moment, right? It's, it's largely stable and it's manageable. Okay, but you know, it's the whole thing's fairly well managed, which isn't true of a lot of schemes overseas. 
Brian, for most of our listeners, electricity and the semantics behind it, no one is really thinking much beyond their power bill. For a whole mm. lot of others, I believe there's a category of nearly a dozen on 1st of May every year mm. for 20s. I think for the last couple of years, the winter energy payment is going to kick in yeah. for a whole lot of people, which helps them with the price of power. But for many of us, we don't look beyond that. Can you give us some figures around New Zealand's power generation capacity currently? And where we are sitting in terms of renewable and non-renewable energy, because most media headlines these days are about how much we need to electrify and we need a massive, you know, investment in increasing our capacity. Where are we? What is the current status? Okay, at the moment, our peak demand is seven thousand megawatts, which is a lot of horsepower, and sixty-five percent of that comes from hydropower. About. 15%, I think, comes from geothermal, which is a really good resource. Steady day and night, it just runs. And then about 5 10% from gas, and about 4 maybe 6% from wind, which is intermittent. Effectively, nothing from solar. And a variable amount from coal, depending on how hard it's rained. In a dry year, we burn a lot of coal like maybe a million tonnes last year, we burned less than 100,000 tonnes. So coal is the one that sits there keeping the lights on when it doesn't rain. And it's a very important role. And we used to do it also with gas, but now the government has stopped gas exploration. Um, we're going to have a declining supply of gas and maybe we'll finish up importing liquefied natural gas rather than uh, <clears throat> using our own gas, which we've got plenty. Which we've got we plenty of. We've got plenty, if we were allowed to explore what, yes. And, and so uh, even Faranaki, uh, the diesel um, uh, generators are all, are all cleaned out, stopped. They don't exist anymore, is that right? We've got no backup there? Um, the, the ones that were put in, they're all running on on gas, on a limited supply of gas. But some of the gas producers need to burn, burn gas because they're producing um, oil as well. And and long uh, the oil comes comes the gas. Sure. Okay, I get that. So in the end, the oil and gas ban, or you know. Um, Prospect, prospecting, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that going to cost us in the end? Do you, do you any idea? It looks, it looks like a really own goal to me. Not having um, a continuation of that, but uh, I know that we've got a virtuous sort of idealistic um, concept that we're going to have less of this. But it does seem an own goal. What's your What's your view on this? On this, I band? think I've seen a figure of thirty billion dollars. Thirty billion dollars. For no good, and and all the result is we burn more coal. It's it's crazy beyond belief. All the rest of the world is trying to get away, get away from coal, and uh, yes, sure. So so going so yeah. going right right back. Um, we should we we jumped quite a wee way uh, ahead of. Uh, and where I sort of thought this may go to, I I think 
when I first started reading your um, output, a lot of it was about the Bradford reforms of yeah. the, I think, early 90s. Yeah. And, and you had some tension around how that played out and how the uh, uh, marketplace um, or how things were separated in the marketplace has behaved ever since. Yeah. Okay. When we nationally corporatized the electricity industry, we formed the Electricity Corporation of New Zealand. Which worked very well. It did a good job, and there was a big improvement over the old NZED, which was hamstrung by government regulations. Then the uh, economists decided that we had to have competition. <coughs> the first report they got said that you've got a, a very good system working now, stick with it. But they persisted and wanted a market system. So the consultants offered them two systems. One was continuing basically with ECNZ, except that it allowed competition from private generation. This was a very good model and not much different from what we had. Therefore, it would work. And it would have guaranteed as cheapest power because it would always be building the next most cheapest electricity. The consultants also said there's another way of doing it, which is having a competitive market in kilowatt hours, which is more risky. So the group chose the more risky option, and that was a fatal mistake, which has cost us billions and billions of dollars and meant lots of windfall profits for all the hydro generators, including me. <laughs> Yeah, and so self-interest um, and principles are part of, are, are not joined in your sense because clearly, if you were, um, yeah, I, I don't blame you for having the windfall profit profit opportunity, but um, yeah, so you're you're not entirely happy with the uh, market system, and I think I used the word nationalised. I didn't mean to say that before. I meant corporatised. Um, how can we fix it? How, what's your remedy? Because clearly. Uh, you know what I've noted is, yeah, the the sell down into the gen gen tailors has um, generator retailers have certainly made significant profits for their shareholders yeah. uh, and their fund managers. Um, some of them have become virtuous poster boys for climate policy uh, and and the like. I, I dare say, if you're majority owned by um, the state, you're going to play uh, to the tune of the state. Yeah, but. But there's something's got to give because I think your warnings are quite salutary about how uh, how this market is effective, especially with the push to wind and solar, is all about pushing the price up, not down, not not holding the price for consumers. And we know, I'm sorry, this is a statement that we know that low cost energy is a vital component of a thriving nation. Yes, low cost energy is vital to any growing economy. And it's the lifeblood of the economy. If you turn all the lights out in the whole of New Zealand, the country's destroyed within a week. People will starve to death and all sorts. So it's vital and it's very important to have a low cost supply because the more expensive it is, the less development you get. So what they're doing is. Um, trying to run the system and 
The system is summarized by two departing CEOs who both said the way to make money out of this market is to keep the power system on the edge of a shortage. That inevitably means in a dry year, you can have a serious shortage, high prices, and possible blackouts. Whereas in the old days, the objective of the system people was to make sure that you survived a dry year. And the rest of the time, you had surplus, in fact, you had surplus power. And getting through the dry year was a critical point. But now, not only that, they want to convert cars and, and transport and um, industrial heating all to electricity, which means that and they want a mass investment in wind and solar power. But the problem is the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. So what you've got to do is have thousands of megawatts of electricity storage. And that's got to be able to store all the electricity that's generated when the wind is blowing and the sun isn't shining and deliver it when it's not. And you need about 4,000 megawatts of storage, which is adding 50% to the existing installed capacity just in storage. And then you need 12,000 megawatts of wind and solar. So you finish up building about, you know, about 15, 20,000 megawatts of new capacity to meet a 4,000 megawatts increase in load. But it gets worse than that because when you look at it carefully, there is no technology which can do the storage job cheaply and economically and efficiently. They're pushing the beyond Lake Onslow, but all it's designed to do, the only thing it's designed to do, is back up dry years. So it's supposed to store energy when it's raining and the rivers are running high and then deliver it back when they're not. And that's all. And if you get two dry years in succession, you've had it. It won't go through. But it's not designed to meet the fluctuations, weekly, daily, hourly fluctuations of wind and solar, which requires a different sort of scheme. Anyway, it's only 1,200 megawatts, and we need 4,000. So we're faced with a situation there is no technology available to do the job that has to be done if their dreams are to come true. The whole thing is just, it's impossible. Gosh, Brent, do you care to put a figure on this? How much is this going to cost? Even though I know you have just yeah. said there is no mm. technology available, but yeah. I am asking for a figure for what they are planning to spend on something yeah. which is a... Okay. Just to, to build all the wind and solar farms and connect them up and convert everything to electricity and all that. Um, Professor Michael Kelly's done a very careful study of this. He's a very eminent New Zealand engineer based in Cambridge, UK. $550 billion. That's... And it won't make any difference to the climate. And 550. 550 billion, and it won't keep the lights on when the wind isn't blowing and the sun's not shining. So if I compare this to a national GDP for the mm -hmm. last year, year ending December 22, our GDP was 380 billion. So yeah. we are talking of a figure yeah. more than our GDP. How can yeah. that be right? 
because he's done his sums and I've gone through it and I agree with him. Oh, gosh, that's something. just an enormous amount of things you've got to do. You've got to get your build all these wind farms. You've got to build transmission lines. You've got to build new substations. You've got to reinforce the distribution system in all the towns to accommodate all this extra heating load and car charging load. You've just you know, got to practically duplicate the existing power system that's taken 100 years to build. All this in a is, few years. This is unbelievable. It's like virtually trying to bankrupt the country for no reason. Yeah. They don't realize it, but that's that's it. Good Lord. It's got to crash and burn. It's just a matter of when it does. So, so Brian, just um, to add a little bit more context, Context: What is the capacity generally from wind turbines? Uh, you know, they, they obviously can generate sort of close to one hundred percent when they're spinning. But what is coming out of them? And same for solar panels. What actually are we achieving in New Zealand currently? Yeah. Okay. A thousand, a one thousand megawatt wind farm will virtually never generate more than eight hundred megawatts. Only one or two percent of the time. So effectively, a thousand megawatts of wind farms is eight hundred megawatts of anything else. But they generate electricity, and if you put all the generation together for one year and steady, it's about 33% or 35%. So a 1,000 megawatt will produce an average output of 350 megawatts. Now, a 350 megawatt uh, geothermal station will produce an average output of about 320 megawatts. And a 1,000 megawatt geothermal station would do about 900 megawatts. So there's a huge difference, but you've got to put in all the cables, all the transformers and everything else to meet this peak demand, which hardly ever happens. So it's ruinously expensive. So I'm going to now show my inexperience and ask a very layperson's question. For me, when I hear this, the figures you're telling me, a number 550 billion, which is more than our national GDP for wind energy or solar, which you say is really, really inefficient. And you're not the only commentator. I've seen other such reports. Do we have capacity of increasing our current hydro? Yes. And geothermal? And why are yeah. we not doing that? If so, it seems to me to be a no-brainer. Yeah. Um upstream and downstream of the Clyde Dam and Roxborough, mm. and several hydro schemes which have been studied and which could be built relatively easily. And they take advantage of the storage in the big glacier and lakes. There's another scheme downstream of Waitaki, which takes advantage of our major storage in Pukaki, 600 megawatts, that one is. Um, those are the easy ones. There are other schemes on the West Coast we could build, and there are um, heaps of smaller schemes which we could build. But the attitude of, I think, the Green Party is we like one of River Hydro, which doesn't store energy, so it's not much use, and we like hydro schemes that comply with our requirements. No hydro scheme complies with their requirements. So you can be in favor of hydro, but in fact, blocking at the same time. Very nice situation to be in. So, 
it's, it's, it's a lot of double speak coming out of uh, out of their mouths, uh, it seems. So interestingly, just before we go off that into solar, you've talked thirty three percent effectively out of a wind farm. Solar, 30, I gather, is, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. And I had thirty eight percent in my head, so yeah, I was <laughs> uh, well, I wasn't going to quibble over a couple of percent. <laughs> but I'm, what I've read is solar is barely ten percent. Is that true? In Much terms of its much less. And that is, I would be. I don't think there's more than one, one or two hundred megawatts of solar. If that, they're building some solar farms. Why I don't know, but they are building some, and they're planning to build quite a few more. Why they're doing it, I cannot understand. Overseas, all solar farms and all wind farms rely on subsidies to be viable. All. The industries would not exist overseas absent subsidies. So what's happening in New Zealand? Is there any subsidies into these developments? There's sort of indirect subsidies in that they don't have to provide the power that's needed when they're not running, when they're not generating. And they're quite substantial indirect subsidies. The consumer pays for that, not the wind farm. If they had to pay for the backup that they need, Nobody would build one. So, if you add, you know, the storage of uh, surplus out of wind and solar yeah. effectively has to go into big batteries or something if we're not yeah. using pumped hydro. What yeah. the requirement to build batteries would that would bankrupt the country, would it? Yeah. If you actually yeah. had to do all of this stuff, I I got looked at the output of a wind farm for a year, and I worked out what. How many batteries you needed to average out the output so you've got a steady output through the year out of the wind farm. The batteries would cost 70 times the cost of the wind farm. Good 70 Lord. times. So it's, it's, you can't even contemplate it. So how does the stuff get so much traction? I mean, I, I know you're one voice, um, and I'm not. You know, you'll have people challenging this. Um, that's how the world works. Um, this it ebbs and flows in opinion. How do they justify this uh, concept uh, to to make it appear uh, uh, virtuous and and palatable to to the consumer? How does that work? Well, the batteries that have gone in on the basis of propping up the power system in very short time periods, a few minutes, sometimes or maybe a few hours. And you can argue that they're quite useful to do to do that. Other things could do it, but they can do it reasonably well. But there's a huge difference between that and thousands of megawatts of batteries, some of it sitting there waiting for a dry year or waiting for a, a, what we call a wind drought. And um, it just, it's everybody around the world recognizes that batteries can't be used for massive long term storage. It's just, and anyway, if you did want to use them, you don't have enough cobalt, lithium, and other rare earths and materials. It's unsustainable because you can't mine the materials we need or even find them at the rate that's necessary to do the things that they dream of. So an, an adjunct to all of this, from my perspective, is uh, we live in, Jasper and I live in the south. Uh, the dominant use of electricity outside the smelter is in the north. We're upgrading the transmission lines at great expense to connect uh, the southern um, 
lakes into uh, effectively the national grid in a, in a greater so that they can take greater capacity. Yeah. What is the what's the story about the cost of all that versus the line losses and the cost of maintaining, say, the Cook Strait cable? Okay, Cook Strait cable was a magnificent piece of work. It was the biggest in the world at the time. It was an enormously bold step, and it's been enormously valuable to New Zealand because it took a lot of very cheap and very good hydropower from the South Island and pushed it into the North Island. And the only alternative we had at that time was burning coal or later on uh, going, going nuclear. And it, it runs fairly hard and runs very successfully. And it's been upgraded on several occasions. It can be upgraded once more. And then that's the limit. And it's only another four or five hundred megawatts. And then it's reached its limit. If we have to build a whole new one, then it's going to be a whole new kettle of fish. So that does seem to beg the question um, that the new generation should be where uh, it's likely to be the most demand uh, in the future. And that clearly is where the big city is at the moment, because you don't see the South Island burgeoning in demand, I wouldn't have thought. So no. so it comes to your hobby horse, and I know uh, it, it's your hobby horse that um, the, the sort of safe nuclear power generation systems that are now being modelled or you know, in place around the world, mm. New Zealand's resistance and reluctance, does that need the national conversation to start again? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Um, strangely enough, New Zealand has not got any laws banning nuclear power stations. And when the laws, anti-nuclear laws were put together, friends of mine <coughs> made very sure that it didn't exclude nuclear power, and they, they said that managed to sneak it through. So we haven't got a law against it like the Australians have. Um, everybody says it's dangerous, which is simply not true. Everybody says it's terribly expensive, which at the moment is substantially true, but not compared with wind and solar power. When you add in the storage cost, I would think the nuclear power would be kind of competitive even now, but not far away, like within the next 10 years, we're going to see a whole lot of new big reactors into serial production. These are ones that have been built now at great expense because everybody's forgotten how to build them. The ones they remember how they built them like sausages years ago, they'll start reducing in cost. And the small reactors are meant to be factory-made, delivered to site, put in place, run them until the fuel runs out, take the reactor away and replace it with a new one and, and refurbish the old reactor. And they will make a dramatic difference. But the other big problem is that everybody is told that low levels of radiation are dangerous. And it's simply not true. There's been very extensive research done and indicates that low levels of radiation up to maybe a thousand times the regulated limit is not dangerous. And it's because of a belief that it is dangerous and a regulation that goes back to the days before they knew much about radiation that says no radiation is dangerous 
6,000 sieverts, millisieverts is dangerous, and half that much is half as dangerous. So everybody under the regulations, low level radiation, are quite dangerous. Everybody knows that it's not true, but nobody will change the regulation. And statistically, nuclear power has proved to be about 100 times safer than any other major form of power generation. Coal-fired stations emit more radiation than a nuclear station, strange enough, because the coal's got a certain amount of uranium in it. And uh, hydropower stations have killed 200,000 people with dam failures. And there's potential for major failures of the big dams that have been built now because the safety standards aren't good enough. <clears throat> so nuclear power is much, much safer than anything we've got. There's no reason to be scared of it. Getting rid of waste is not a problem because there's so little of it. And within about 800 years, it declines to a level which is not dangerous. But if you don't go near it, you don't get hurt. And so what they're doing is putting it all in big steel canisters and sticking it out in the backyard of the station and leaving it there. As long as nobody goes near it, nobody will get hurt. If you live downstream of a big dam, you are at risk. The dam fails, you will drown. Nothing Gosh. you can do it. If the dam gets abandoned, you for sure you'll drown because if the dam gets abandoned, eventually it'll fail. I heard that what you just said, Bran, and my ears pricked up. You said coal powered stations emit more radiation than a yeah. nuclear powered one. And yeah. and on that note, Bran, could I ask you if you could move a little closer to your mic, please? When you were a bit cl closer to the screen. I'm yes. using this mic. Okay, but somehow you, the quality of sound was changing. That's all good. Yeah. But seriously, you are saying that a coal powered station. Is, has emits more radiation, and that's yeah. a proven fact. In day-to-day -day operation. Not right. Over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing yeah. to do with the fuel, but just in day-to-day -day operation. Gosh, you live, you learn, Don. Yeah. And, and so what uh, What would the radiation be like in terms of, uh, you know, you go and have an X-ray, um, and they give, you know, the people standing there have lead, lead uh, shield aprons yeah. and things on. What is What comes out of sort of a standard X-ray machine uh, in terms of radiation that's supposedly... Um, dangerous in terms of yeah. equivalence. I, I know more about if you take a single flight it's probably worth it. Mm -hmm. several months exposure to a nuclear station a single flight or maybe even more and uh, pilots get exposed to that all the time Yeah, and if, if you go into space well it's really bad <laughs> but still not but the, the interesting one is cancer for, for cancer, they give you radiation treatment, very high-powered, very serious, and the cancers themselves itself are exposed to radiation that if you expose your whole body to it, would kill you in a couple of minutes. Just outside the cancer cell, it's still exposed to very high levels of radiation. And if radiation was as dangerous as everybody says it was, most of the people who... <clears throat> get radiation treatment for cancer, would later die of radiation-induced cancer. And they don't, maybe 5% do, maybe less. 
So, so that, that really is very strong evidence that low levels of radiation are not dangerous. So there is a big conversation to have, and um, yeah. we're unwilling to have it, uh, yeah. it seems. Uh, and, you know, linking all this into uh, nuclear uh uh, electricity generation having low CO2 emissions. Uh, mm -hmm. If CO2 is as deleterious as all the pundits say, and I disagree with that, by the way, um, you would think it's a good thing. Secondly, we'd have less need for massive transmission upgrades, uh, in, as far as I can, can see it, if it was built in the, in the central or northern upper half of yeah. the North Island. Um, the country is the obvious place for nuclear power for Auckland. And that's oh. north of Auckland, which is really where we need the power. Does the does the Kuiper Mayor know that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but if I was him, I'd say, good oh, I need some development. <laughs> Safe <Good work. laughs> and, so, and profitable. So Perth of Thames is the other place that was proposed for nuclear station. Sure. So just uh finishing a little bit more on the uh hydro. Um, and earthquakes and uh, instability, where well, some have, some have failed around the world. What is the uh, danger of an earthquake uh, in a nuclear situation, nuclear power plant? Um, is it safer, or can it be contained, or or is there an issue? It's barely an issue because they have built um, nuclear stations in highly earthquake-prone countries. Japan being a classic example. The Fukushima one was subject to an earthquake quite a bit stronger than it was designed for and it, su it survived without any da dangerous things happening 30 minutes later a tsunami arrived and drowned the emergency diesel generators that were keeping all the emergency systems running so fukushima became a disaster because of the tsunami not because of the earthquake but even then According to those that know, nobody has or will die of radiation from Fukushima. Thousands of people died from forced evacuations that weren't necessary. I, I can't get over this. We are trying to save us from ourselves. We are trying to bankrupt the country, spending more than our GDP on this. And yet we have absolutely, at least out here where I live and Don and I live, Southland, mm. the hospitals are just crumbling. They've been mm. in a code red off and on. We have people literally collapsing here in ERs. Uh, 12 to 24-hour waits are very routine at Q Hospital, uh, mm. Brian. So I can think of a whole lot of other users for this money that they want to spend on these hairbrain schemes for nothing. Absolutely nothing, because nothing that New Zealand does can change our climate. So it's all wasted money. And lots of people are telling the public that if we do all these magical things, our climate will change, which is gross misinformation. They should be strung up for. <laughs> it's incredible how we've gone so far down this track. And you and your and your notes to us uh, for the show talked about the South African uh, tragic example and. I read an article, it's quite timely actually, because I read an article the other day in the Manhattan Contrarian uh, mm. by Francis Menton, who absolutely mentioned the same thing, how um, uh, the big push in South Africa to have wind and solar and, and the like has mm. basically caused mayhem, um, lots of power outages, 
uh, lots of jobs lost. And I've got one other angle that I've got a friend who comes from South Africa and he's in the sector. He talks about the massive corruption at the top end of town um, through this push. Um, it's a salutary warning, isn't it, for New Zealand? It, it is a, a, a serious warning to us. And I work in Nigeria where the peak demand is 4,000 megawatts for a country of 200 million people. So half the demand of New Zealand. Third of the power comes from emergency diesels and offshore they're flaring gas. So they've got gas to burn and they can't get their act together to use it. It's tragic. Well, it is a tragedy if you're trying to build an economy. And as we yeah. talked about earlier, you need low cost energy to release the shackles of, of being in the third world. Energy. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And, so and just, the, way, the way that things are going at the moment, because of the way the market's set up, our domestic electricity is set to increase quite substantially in the next few years. And it's not locked in to the way the market works for wow. no good reason. 65% of our electricity comes from hydropower with a generating cost of three or four cents. And now it's now been sold for 15 to 20 cents. Yeah, unbelievable. No good reason. So linking into this this push and mm. and it's and happening in my area. So I'm and mm. I'm not uh, mm. sure what's happening around the rest of the country. And mm. I don't I don't decry any uh, of the people that are investing in this and promoting it because uh, the opportunity has been given. But yeah. green, green and grey hydrogen. Hey, mm. What's your opinion about hydrogen uh, elect electrolyzing and the cost of that and the output uh, received from that electrolyzing process? The whole thing's crazy beyond belief. It doesn't stand up to common sense. It doesn't stand up to plain economics. And it, it's weird. Hydrogen is, isn't an energy source. It's just a man, a way of casting, transporting energy and using it in a different form. So you get some perfectly good electricity and make some hydrogen, lose two thirds of the energy on the way, and then you burn it in a, in a car engine and lose quite a bit more energy. When you, uh, if you'd used the same energy to charge batteries, you'd have been far better off. Even electric car, which I think is also uneconomic. So, so it doesn't make sense. I don't understand why anybody anywhere is interested in hydrogen. There's huge problems in storing it, there's huge problems in pumping it around. If you put if you mix it with natural gas and have too much of it, your, your pipelines get embrittled and break. It's it's dangerous. It's Flashpoint is very wide, so you can get gas explosions. It's crazy. There's no sense in it at all. So you think it's the ultimate virtue signal um, from the from the sector? Because boy, there's a lot of people promoting uh, hydrogen around the country. Uh, I think they've got a they've got a group doing it. And I, as again, I I try not to have an opinion about it. Um, it does seem a bit um, a bit odd to me, but. Yeah, hopefully the opinions all that that carry weight rise to the surface. I think it's the ultimate signal of how stupid people can be. <laughs> I really do. Yeah, you all got right. that right. I think virtue signaling should be replaced with stupid signaling. Yeah, just watch out for these people. 
Uh, incidentally, not too long ago, uh, Don, when we were traveling into Queenstown, I, I stopped at uh, Athol and uh, we were going to meet up there for a meeting and there were some German tourists who stopped by this coffee shop where I was and this lady just saw me sitting alone, started chatting. Mm. And her first question to me, and this was last month, was, what are your power prices here doing? This was a van load of German tourists. Yeah. And I said, well, uh, I'm a dairy farmer. We pay massively. My husband and I, we run two cow sheds, pay close mm-hmm. to $60,000 a year in par. Mm-hmm. And But I said, I haven't yet noticed a jump. I said, how about you guys? And I, I can't imitate her accent, but she said, oh, she says, they have absolutely screwed us here. And she says, you know what the best part is? She says, for years, Germany criticized Qatar you know, human rights and women rights and all of that. And mm. she says, now our ministers have cut a deal with Qatar and they've told us we might start getting some LPG or natural gas flowing in there. Yes. So I said, was it always like this? This lady was in her 60s and she goes, no, she says, they've just gotten madder and madder as I've grown older. <laughs> <laughs> she'd be bad. Yeah, she'd be right. Bad. No, I mean, the, the ultimate stupidity is shutting down perfectly good nuclear stations. And I just can't help thinking that we are following suit, aren't we? Mm. And, and the only reason they did it is they used it as an election drive and then they found they were stuck with it. Mm. So then I think we should go to emissions. Much of this, the whole point of why we are spending or why we are wasting this money when we could be spending it on Healthcare, better housing, goddammit, better roads as winter hits out here and the horrible mm. roads we have here. Yeah. We are spending this money to save the climate, aren't we? Mm. We are saving the world, aren't we doing uh, this? We're spending this money in a blind belief that we will save the world when there's no chance of making the slightest difference. But don't we have Even to. Even if our... the predictions were true, we wouldn't be making a difference. But don't we have to do our bit, Brian? Don't we have to? New Zealand is supposed to going to be a world leader in all of this nonsense. We have to do our bit, says the Prime Minister. Well, if we want to squander that much money on a futile effort to be seen, to be doing our bit, where nobody else can take any notice because they're desperately trying to keep their lights on. Because, you know, who need doctors or anything or roading? We can just, I don't know, this winter, as someone said, maybe the hungry and the freezing can unite. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but uh, I mean, it's, it's all crazy. One of the, the things is that, that all the predictions are based on computer models of the climate, and these in turn are, are based on various scenarios for how much coal will burn or not burn, and how much wind power will generate, and how much nuclear power will generate, and how much gas will burn. And we have chosen to base our, all our efforts and everything and actions on the predictions coming out of what's called RCP 8.5, which says we're going to burn heaps, heaps more coal, we're going to burn less gas, and we won't do much nuclear and wind power and solar. Now, this was a scenario we've dreamed up 20 years ago. It's no longer relevant. The IPCC has said it is extremely unlikely and should not be used for policy making. Every public body in New Zealand is using it for policy making. So if you use a more realistic scenario, then there's no particular, there's no climate emergency. We've got plenty of time to 
proof ourselves against global warming. But the people who should think, you know, you think when somebody says, goodness gracious, that's a relief, we don't have to worry so much. If you think it's a lot better than you thought. No, 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 no. We want to stick to RCP 8.5. We, we've got to prove ourselves against the most unlikely scenario. So why are they defending something that the IPCC says they should not even use? I don't so know. For our listeners, we are chatting with Brian Leland. And Brian has had six years of experience in the electricity sector in New Zealand. He's an electrical and mechanical engineer. And we are talking of RCP 8.5. I and Don, we've spoken about this earlier, but mm -hmm. RCP 8.5 is a model, a scenario which envisions, and correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, this mm -hmm. RCP 8.5 is 8.5 watts per square meter of energy, which is going to be the difference mm -hmm. of the greenhouse gas hitting the earth and you know mm -hmm. the amount escaping the gap between those two, which is going to be leading to a three degree rise in global temperatures. Now, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has said after COP27 last year that this is improbable. In fact, they've added another model. Is it uh, RCP 3.7 or 4.5? Uh, uh, I think 4.5 and 6. Four, yeah. 5. And they've added About one interim one, 3.7 or something. But mm -hmm. what you've just said, that we insist on making decisions based on this. I've had first-hand experience of this uh, going to some council work out here in Southland District. Now, our models, the ones we are working on, or our climate advisors working on, his hands are tied because the Ministry of Environment's document, the interim guidance on the use of new sea level rise projections based mm -hmm. on which they are doing modeling for managed mm -hmm. retreat and so on, talks about RCP 8.5. So I, I could debate this gentleman till cows mm -hmm. come home, and I have. But mm -hmm. as he tells me, he's being forced to do these modelings, knowing full well that they are futile, because according to our, what what did they call themselves, the single source of truth, the government? Yeah. <laughs> so the single source of uh, RCP modelling tells mm -hmm. us RCP 8.5 is the one. So we are working on the worst case scenario, the I mean heights of improbability, and we are spending time, money on consultants, and we'll now be having some conversations, I guess, from these models, what comes out for the people who live in certain areas is beggar's belief. Yes, and um, I've had correspondence with Professor James Winwick, and he too has admitted that it's highly unlikely. So probably one of the top climate men in New Zealand admits that it's highly unlikely and they still don't believe him. Well, he's the go-to guy for the media uh, every yeah. time there's a, a scary scenario discussion required mm. to be put in front mm. of the public, mm. and he's got the information doubting doubting, uh, doubting mm. the RCP 8.5, which mm. now also has a sort of similar um, uh, scenario called a socio, uh, shared socioeconomic pathway, yeah. Uh, it's to confuse and also embellish mm. this the subject to make it sound mm. really scary. So he admits he admits this is fallacious at eight point five, but he's not beating the drums and saying New Zealand should back up the bus and yeah. stop destroying its economy. And I have it in writing from him that it is unlikely. Uh, I find that unacceptable uh, for mm. 
as as I think he was at Niwa, is he still with Niwa or is he yeah. at Victoria University where most of them seem to go? Yeah, he's at Victoria University. <laughs> right. Uh, well, it's um, it's. I think I think the public of New Zealand need to know a whole lot more because I I became aware of this about October. Oh, after COP twenty seven anyway, mm-hmm. and um, the only people I hear heard in New Zealand since talking about it loudly were uh, Muriel Newman and her weekly, and um, Barry Brill, the chairman of the Science Coalition, uh, on the platform with Sean Plunkett. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've I've talked about it. Jasper Eats talked about it, and there is an element of doubt that. We're talking the truth, but but mm. it's out there, and New Zealand's still hell bent on this eight point five scenario, which I think I read somewhere where even if it was uh, to that level, we wouldn't have enough coal to burn to actually make it yeah. get to that. Yeah, yeah. So it's that's how nutty an impossible scenario. Yeah, so that's how nutty our scenario is, listeners. Um, and yet we've got all our institutions in New Zealand. Mm making you feel uncomfortable about a future that is not likely. Yeah. Now, just in, in, in Auckland, they're extending West Haven Marina with the new car park. The new car park is one and a half metres above the old car park, and it's a big reclamation, just because of the predictions of sea level rise. <laughs> Never mind, this will turn into an island if it happens. <laughs> <laughs> they are. This is criminal. They're already turning us into islands. Mm. My council at this point, we are unable to afford to keep certain bridges open. Mm. A couple of weeks ago, there's one bridge, and this is the first of many. We have, I mean, South Island is just bridges mm. and bridges, literally. Mm. And this is the first of many. It's been temporarily brought down to a lower weight limit. And mm. uh, yeah. There's suddenly standards coming up and safety issues and whatnot. So we can't mm-hmm. afford to keep our bridges open. Mm-hmm. This from a province which uh, contributes 15% of our exports as a country. Mm-hmm. And yet we have money to spend on all of this yeah. virtue signaling. I Some days it you know one really thinks that, honestly, what are we doing here? Are these people actually that stupid or is it time to stop looking for a reason and treason now. We've been grabbed by a religious cult. It really uh-huh. would. When you hold beliefs which are against logic and you hold them in spite of all the, all the evidence, you can only call it a religious cult and that's what it's become. And um, Crichton years ago gave a speech saying that environmentalism is a new religion and has all the indications of religious belief, a blind belief in a disaster scenario. Only I can save you. <clears throat> Give me lots of money and power. It works. It works. It, isn't it hard to believe um, incessant brainwashing? Yeah, we, we call the show greenwashed. Mm. But um, brainwashing, whitewashing, and now red redwashing as well all seems part of it. Yeah. And... Uh, I can't believe that 25 or more years of this has slowly got into the national psyche so deep that it is ingrained in all our institutions right down. If you if you analyze it, this sounds stupid, I know, but right down to preschool level, yes. our children are being indoctrinated with this fear of the future. Uh, and the anxiety that's being created by people is something we're going to talk about on Greenwashed in the week, next week or two. Mm. This eco-anxiety... 
um, that we could all have had had some mm. of us not been sort of seeking the truth. Yeah. Um, we've gone a long way into it, and it's it's disappointing. Uh, it's going to take a long long time to get out of it. I imagine yeah. a big recession might help. Yeah, the only thing that encourages me is when uh, Eastern Europe got liberated, a whole lot of young people flipped into capitalism very fast. <laughs> right. So, but they were probably aware they were being fed bullshit with people here at the moment. They're not aware of it. They believe what they're being told. And I suspect that they didn't believe what the government was telling them. So the dark forces behind all this stuff, where do you think it emanated from? I mean, Jasper and I have talked in previous shows about uh, about 100 years of um, slow or long marching through the institutions <laughs> or... Uh, yeah. Etc. Uh, where do you think it emanated from? Uh, well, maybe we're barking up the wrong tree, but um, I think we've got. We'd, we'd love it, to hear your opinion. It's primarily money and power. To a politician, the salvation circus uh, philosophy is always a good one. And somebody said that the goal of government is to keep the, the populace in fear of some imminent disaster. So I'm going to follow them. And that's what they're doing. And then there's lots of money and influence in it. I mean, a large proportion of our university lecturers and people rely entirely on a belief in global warming for their jobs. Without, without it, they wouldn't even have one. And they're in a lovely situation because they can write all these papers and do all this research, and there's no chance that anything will ever come of it. So they can't be proved wrong. <laughs> It's, it's marvellous. They don't have to produce anything that's reproducible. And uh, it's, the whole thing is so vague. And then there's, I have a suspicion, and it's no more than that. Although there's, some, um, there's also evidence that the Russians have paid environmental organisations in Europe and UK and USA to oppose fracking because they, the Russians want to sell the gas rather than produce it. So there's, there's a degree of that. Whether or not the windmill and solar power people have passed money to the environmental organisations to oppose nuclear power, I don't know, but it would be common commercial sense for them to do so. It would be the, be the sort of thing you do. We know that... Uh, the gas lobby paid the Sierra Club in USA to oppose coal, which they did very successfully. And then they turned around and opposed gas as well. The old Sierra Club, eh? Um, yeah. At the same it's, time it's, as the... It's public knowledge that, that they were paid to oppose coal. And it's public knowledge that the Russians have paid environmental organisations in many countries. It's it's it it beggars belief how um I mean I know money and power and greed and all the rest of it mm. comes into it, but in all conscience, how do people how do people not um especially in the in the New Zealand sense in their institutions not have a very red face uh when they know they're taking their their wage check under false pretense? For the same reason that people are fighting wars against Christian wars and Christian wars against each other and against the Muslims, all thought that God was on their side. Therefore, they're right. The others are wrong. And we have a duty 
to save them from themselves. So, so, so just uh, fast forward to the last five years. It seems to have gathered a pace. Uh, yeah, yeah. This this uh, fervor that we must do something. We just got to do something, or we've got to do it for the sake of the world's temperature, or we've got to do it to, for brand New Zealand. Um, there's there's going to be a whole big paycheck for us at the end of it all. Uh, yeah, but I talk to usually older groups, U3A and Provision, like fairly often, and. On, on this this sort of thing, and only once, and it was last week, have I had anybody in the audience take me on, and it was good that they did. And we had a very interesting discussion, and um, and I get the sense that most of the older generation are suspicious, and are very interested to discover that there's good reasons for them being suspicious. But well, that- the, the mass media will not publish anything against it. Stuff on their website says they will not publish anything that argues against man-made global warming. It's there in the feathers. The NBR won't, but it doesn't say so. The Herald won't, but it doesn't say so. Newsroom does. It's the only one I've found that the published comments opposing global warming. Even though they believe in it, at least they let them be printed. Yes, they certainly do. The output from from newsroom, the output from newsroom is almost pro. Uh, let's have more of this. It looks uh, looks like a big big earner. Yeah, um, but they I've do just, allow debate. Right. Well, that's a good thing. Uh, yeah. I've just read a, a rural paper today, and there was a young scribe. Um, well, I assume it, the person was young by uh, the the argument uh, he posited, which was that old people need to get out of the way and let young innovators come through uh, and we'll we'll sort all this. Well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy for young and innovative people to come through, but not uh, if they endorse shonky um, concepts. Uh, that, for instance, in 2014, um, Christina Vergara said in 2014, I've read this this morning, communism's the best mechanism to fight um, global warming. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in, in effect, um, she could be right because you'd get a whole lot of um, little servants uh, capitulating and giving into this nonsense. But that was written in a headline in 2014. So you can sense my cynicism. Um, you know, I'm not supposed to have opinions, but I can't help myself. Um, uh, uh, about this, I call it an occult Um more than a climate cult, it's like an occult. So, mm. uh, yeah, it's a, it's weird how we've all succumbed to this um, to this notion that we're all about to fry. When, mm. when actually, uh, having watched even other uh, videos in the last week and, and and read articles about global cooling is again mm. on the agenda quite mm. significantly. So, mm. I don't know, Brian, the genesis of all this, and um, and I think you know a bit more about. The, the warming and cooling cycles. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, 1970s, it was full of an oncoming ice age, and we should sprinkle carbon dust all over the ice caps to melt them to stop the world freezing up. I remember reading it. Yes, and I remember when I first came farming that we were just through the worst of that uh, global cooling scare and it transitioned by about 1992 global warming. And I'll never forget, Brian, when I was uh, doing my 
sort of national political stuff for farming, uh, I always used to use the term climate variation mm. rather than global warming or climate change. Mm. And I was despised by the pundits out of Victoria University. I'll bet. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't suit the narrative. Yeah. And yet when we look at it, it was uh, late last month, exactly a month ago, 28th March, the headlines said on RNZ, cuts awarded after South Island asked to conserve power immediately. Transpar had said that when uh, temperatures fell uh, last week of March, suddenly there was a bit mm -hmm. of a snow. And they said there could be power outages and people should stop everything that they can, which was including washing machines, computers, mm -hmm. you're charging anything, EVs and whatnot. And this was March. We are talking of right now, we haven't even gone to EVs at the scale, say, which you would find in California or something. And there, they were already struggling in March, end of March. Where, where do we think we have the capacity for anything else right now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the the normal wholesale electricity price is about fifteen cents a kilowatt hour. Yesterday evening, it went up to seventy cents. Why? I don't know. Seventy. It shot up to 70 cents for a couple of hours and then dropped again. Why this happens, I have no idea. I've been studying this market for 20-something years, and I do not know how it works. I cannot predict what's going to happen from one minute to the next. We, so, we do know inflation is biting hard. We do know people are already struggling to put basics on the table. Mm. We do know we can't afford any more power price hikes mm. and these flights of fancy or these pet projects mm. as these people have yet this doesn't stop these people no. what's it 80,000 panels in Nasby another mm. solar farm and whatnot and how this is going to save us all mm. it's mad and there's strong evidence that the more wind and solar power a country has the more expensive its electricity is yeah and somebody plotted a graph of it and one of the outliers which is very high I'm in the average line. It's Australia. Now, Australia used to have the cheapest power in the world because it has lots of cheap coal. And then they started subsidizing wind and solar. And this has jacked up the price. And now they have some of the most expensive power in the world, even though they don't have much wind and solar compared to other countries. It's crackers. Must... The whole thing's crackers. And Germany's must... got the highest price of all. Germany and Denmark. Lots of wind power, high price, and they tell us it's the cheapest power available. <laughs> I must ask you, they're talking of now the four views rates in our backyard. Offshore wind farm possible, says Otago Daily Times, and four views mm. rates is being looked at as a possible location for an offshore wind farm. Mm. I know our council also has uh, is worried if it has to become a carbon neutral organization, mm. the Stuart Island power generation, they've got generators mm. there that adds into our emission profile. And an electric car. <laughs> so what what possible options do they have? Why are they doing this? The only option they have at the moment is continual diesel, which is not that bad in thousands of communities around the world with mm. and hoping that in a few years' time, within 10 or 50 years' time, they'll be able to put in a 15 or with 5, 10, or 15 megawatt nuclear reactor. And then they'll be happy, environmentally, <laughs> no emissions, complete power, day and night, 
cheap power in the early hours of the morning. It'd be lovely. You can run all the fridges flat out in the early hour of the morning and probably get paid for it. Next off Antarctica. Um, yeah. Well, they did have a reactor in Antarctica and they pulled the bloody thing out. In Antarctica? Yeah, yeah. Scott base used to be supplied by a nuclear reactor. Oh, my goodness. And they took it away and now it's diesels and some wind farms. Intriguing. But the New Zealand base, they had diesels and the diesels also, the waste heat from diesels supplied the heating for the base. The American base, one group put in the diesel generators and another group put in the heating and they didn't use any waste heat from the diesels. Ah. It's intriguing because I know there's been a lot of reports done uh, and research done on how to power Stewart Island better and mm. cheaper. And mm. the cost of all those reports, I think they could have dropped a cable into the strait and had it done by now, but it probably goes through some oyster beds or something. So maybe that was yeah. the problem. Not sure. One, one thing that they won't have thought of is using what's called single white earth return, which was pioneered in New Zealand 50, sure. 100 years ago by somebody I used to work for. And they could put a single core cable to um, to Stewart Island, and possibly that would would be economic. And we certainly worth thinking about. But everybody has to have three phase. Everybody's always had three phase, and when I go telling them they don't need it, they yeah. just don't listen. So the but capacity quite likely it would work. So it could it could have enough capacity to cater for sort of what I think it's about four hundred residents and a few no, processing no. factories. Yeah, no problem. No problem. No. Interesting. And with, with modern electronics, in the old days you had to have three phase power because you had three phase motors. Now you buy a box of electronics and it cranks out three phase power from single phase input. Fantastic. And you can do it all with electronics. There's just no barrier to them using a. A, a single core cable, we better half the cost of a, a three core cable. Gosh, I didn't know that. So that's news yeah. to me. One thing we haven't touched on today, Brian. I think we should is um, microgrids and um, on you know an in, in individuals uh, or an individual yeah. homes um, yeah. solar capacity or whatever, and whether that that is a viable option for for going off grid without sort sort of a bat. Uh, sorry, a, a, a fueled generator for backup. Uh, with passive ho- passive homes and the like, so low energy he- uh, to heat homes and the like, mm-hmm. if you just want basic services to your house, um, can wind and solar on its own do the business in, in a climate like the South that has um, an over uh, daylight uh, hours of about 10 hours Oh no, not even that. Uh, nine hours in the in the longest day. Yeah. Oh, sorry, shortest so, day. I get it around the wrong way. Shortest day I have, in winter. I have, I have firsthand experience because my my niece and my husband lived in an echo village on Waiheke, which was not connected to the mains. And they had twenty thousand dollars worth of solar panels and about the same amount of um, batteries, and tucked away in a corner, a little diesel generator. But their whole life was dominated by how much charge was in the batteries. So they couldn't have an electric stove, they couldn't have electric water heating, they couldn't have a whole lot of things that we take for granted, and they kept watching the state of the batteries. So instead of being a non-issue as it is with us, the lights go on, it was a major factor in their lifestyle, whether or not they had enough electricity. 
And, you know, we had microgrids. Well, all the electricity generation in New Zealand started off with a series of microgrids, little hydro schemes. I mean, we, we uh, in Golden Bay, they put in a little hydro scheme and that kept it up. And then, then they got connected to the grid. Wow, we're connected to the grid. We're made. It's, but it's sharing the load. It's sharing the demand. And it's a marvelous thing. So why people want to go back to splitting up a system which is much better integrated, I do not know. Well, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to challenge that, but I imagine people's thinking is around the cost of the electricity that you've put up the case for today yeah. that can't go down in price as long as you've got intermittent um, supply happening uh, and, and less baseload power. Yeah, and certainly there are quite a lot of cases, and you'd be know about them, where you've got long transmission lines to an individual farm um, which need to be replaced, and it's and that is prohibitively expensive. And in that case, on those isolated cases, it's a good idea. And, and I, I wouldn't stop people doing it, but don't kid yourself. You get cheap power from that. You get cheaper power than paying for a whole new transmission line, but not cheap power. <laughs> yeah, and I know I'm aware out near where Jasper lives. There is a. Um rural area power scheme um, that's been set up on that very concept too uh, at, near the start of the Humperidge um, walking track. So, and that was uh, effectively because the cost of replacing those transmission lines uh, around the coast was just too severe. Yeah. It's it's a vexed issue, but we love electricity. Uh, don't want it turned off. Want it cheaper or as cheap as possible. Um, it's a It's a basic human right. Uh, the way I read it in the modern era, privilege, and privilege, it's, it's a privilege. <laughs> it's absolutely a privilege, but yeah. we need it as cheap as possible. And it seems yeah. that everything's being done today to make it more expensive. Yeah, and less reliable. And yeah, sorry, and less reliable. Not reliable is hugely expensive, and South Africa discovered destroys yeah. your economy. Yes. So why, you know, we've talked about uh, this in a general sense, it does question, make you question why anyone would want to do this to itself. It's it's like an own goal mm. um, in soccer or football. It just makes mm. no sense. Yeah. It does make sense, no matter how you look at it. So I just want an electron to come down these uh, wires into my house, and I, I'm quite happy to pay for it. I don't want it to be uh, turned off when I when I need it. Mm. Um, I'm actually okay with the outages that I do have. Uh, mm. The company that manages the network, uh, it, it does a good job and, yeah. and keeps the lights on. Um, and I know there's tension, for instance, we haven't talked about this, there's tension about smart meters. Well, I've got a view that smart meters are actually a good thing. Uh, if you can identify where an outage is about to happen, mm. um, it sends a message back to uh, to the control panel, look, get out to Don's place because he's about to have an, have an outage on his line. I think that's mm. a good thing. Yeah. What's your thoughts on smart meters? Um, oh, they're quite useful. Uh, mainly in saving meeting reading costs. But that, the rollout has been handled badly because we've started off with all sorts of different meters with all sorts of different protocols and if you change supplier they have to change meters so we spent a hell of a lot of money more than we needed to on smart meters but the, the downside is that everybody assumes that they would replace ripple control not water heaters so everybody abandoned 
hot water control, and they didn't. I'm not quite sure what reason. So now we've got hundreds of megawatts of, of water heaters that could be remote controlled and managed our load, which are not controlled. 40, 40 years ago, we could dump a huge proportion of the national load in a few minutes. Now we can't. Ex- explain, explain that because it was at the, I think I've, I've got it right there. Into your house, there would have been two, two, um, two meters, one for your water heating yeah. and one for your, your general yeah. use. And they, you could turn off the, um, the water heating one at, uh, at you the one with the controller. Could. They yeah, could. they could. Yeah, absolutely. Could. Yeah. But and they with can't. A, with a modern system, we could arrange that transfer, for instance, had one button and say, we've just lost a big generating plant. Bingo. Dumped all the whole water, water heaters in New Zealand. Saved the system. We'd save mm-hmm. a hell of a lot of shutdowns and a hell of a lot of running plant at light load just in case a big generating service had shut down. There's enormous things you could do and nobody's interested in doing it because the way the market's set up, doesn't reward them for doing it. Sign of the times, isn't it? We want to self-sabotage. We are self-sabotaging another way. We don't need to do all of that. There won't even be (laughs) much power left that, you know, to be worried about that. Shall we conserve power? Because we are going to be running out of it if we continue down this path. Yeah. No, it's crazy. It's a heck of a story, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. We're lucky to have Brian tell us his view of the state of the nation's um, electricity sector. And uh, and the machinations of climate, um, yeah, uh, we're lucky to have people with your knowledge in the in the in the background, uh, Ryan. And uh, yeah, great that we could have you on Reality Check Radio, Greenwashed. So uh, absolutely, thank you so much, Ryan, and thank you for still speaking up. There's a whole lot of people who've gone PC, who who know what is right and who know what is wrong and still won't speak anything, so very grateful. Well, you get vilified if you do, and in a lot of cases you put your job at risk. If you're an academic and you challenge the conventional wisdom, you get the bums rush. And uh, no, there's, and, and a lot of people in, in other jobs. I mean, if you're in the electricity industry, you don't get up and say that uh, electricity storage is your big problem, why aren't you paying attention to it? I, mean, I can say it, but if you if you're employed by a government majority organization that is pushing um, renewable energy, you'd better push it too. I know a few good men. That's what we are left with. And I, I'm so grateful you chose to come on today. Thank you so much, Brian, for your time. And uh, hopefully we'll get you back another time because the story short as heck ain't over. <laughs> it's been great. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. And that was your Reality Check this week from the Greenwashed team, me, Jaspreet, and Don Nicholson. Thank you so much for tuning in, taking the time to listen, and of course, sending us feedback. Before we go, I'd like to leave you with the shot clip from Tom DeWeese our guest last week, incidentally, speaking in the U.S. about, you know, very similar conditions and what you can do to push back at a local level. I certainly enjoyed it, and I hope so do you. 
and you find something useful in this. Take care and have a great week. We shall see you again next Monday. Goodbye. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. I'm standing here with Tom DeWeese. Uh, he's well known to readers of The New American. Uh, he's actually on the National Council of the Birch Society. And um, he gave a, a wonderful talk here about the importance of uh, local activism and working with your local elected officials. He runs, of course, the American Policy Center, a phenomenal organization that's really at the forefront of fighting back against the sustainable development madness. Tom, thank you for being with us. Um, talk a little bit about things that people can do in their local communities. You emphasize the importance of local activism. Give some people ideas for what they can do in their town, in their city, in their county to push back against this tyranny. Yeah, absolutely. People are very intimidated. They look at the federal government and all these powers, even international, and they think there's nothing we can do. But if you begin to look at how they're operating, and they're coming into your local communities, looking at your city councilmen, your county commissioners, and so forth, and just surrounding them and pouring this stuff on, we're not there. And that's what people need to do. They've got to be there themselves uh, and, and be involved. And uh, as I went over uh, yesterday in my, my talk, uh, building a team in your community that you don't want to be sitting there and have them come up with some new crazy idea and you're everybody sitting around going, do you know about this? Where'd this come from? What, how do we do with that? By the time you've asked all those questions, they've already got it in place. You need a permanent infrastructure that's ready to, to immediately move on things. And it's what I call building a freedom pod. And the other thing with this is don't worry about what's happening in the next community or the next. Worry about yours and make the focus you're going to protect uh, local businesses and free enterprise. You're going to protect private property rights. You're going to protect individual liberty. If you make those three things, the three pillars of freedom that uh, you're focusing on, then uh, you can begin to stop a whole lot of things that are happening. And so to build a team, the first thing you need to do is know your enemy. Who are you up against? What's what's the, you know, what's the the plan here. And uh, research is the very important thing to do to find that out. Uh, every community has a comprehensive development plan that these people are, these, these NGOs, these non-governmental organizations and so forth that are surrounding your elected officials, they're responsible for creating those things. And you look in that plan and you can see uh, uh, what, where they're going, what kind of policies there are, uh, get to know who these NGOs are. These are carpetbaggers in your community. They don't belong there. And they're international groups or they're national groups, and nothing they do is local. None of the policies are local. But you begin to look at that, and one of the things I tell people as they're looking at the comprehensive plan, look for one single line in there that says anything about protection of property rights. It's not there. And I, uh, the reason that I've got involved in, in, in pushing for property rights is my main focus is because I learned that all of these plans under sustainable, 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 uh, sustainable has kryptonite in it. That kryptonite is they can't put it in place without destroying property rights. And so if, if you can protect your property rights, you can stop it. The second thing you want to do, get three or four people who volunteer to just go to every meeting, every public meeting. City council, city county commission type thing. Okay. Right, yeah. I, I've had so many city councilmen, county commissioners say to me, Tom, your people aren't there. We never hear from you. And if, you, if finally one of our people do show up, it is so 
odd to them that and, and, the, and the NGOs are whispering in their ears saying uh, don't pay attention to him the guy's crazy you know <laughs> and the conspiracy theorist and uh, but get these watchers to go and just sit there they don't have to do another thing but listen and take notes and, and see what's going on watching that you will begin to see what is uh, w what the plans are who the players are involved in it and you'll know ahead of time a lot of what they're going to do uh, combine that with the research then you get the agitators these are the people that are your spokesmen the people who are going to go before the the, the councils and speak to them and take your position to them uh, you don't want to go in and start screaming at, at these elected officials you want to go in with a very organized uh, plan and if you've got three or four people uh, you can organize what each one's going to say so you get it all out because they give you three minutes as they sit on high looking down at you uh, and uh, the other thing I was told, uh, advised by someone, don't everybody be in there under the same name, the same organization. You want to have uh, different little break-off groups or something that uh, have different names. It makes you look much larger. Um, and you, from there, you can begin to put together a social media team to get your information. You, know, you talk about the media. Every time I say to people, put a media team together, every eye in a place rolls like, uh -huh. oh, yeah, we're going to get with those leftists and <laughs> get something done. But first of all, if you put a social media team together and they can begin to put stuff on, on uh, social media and you can help spread information that way, uh, you can also, um, uh, I, I think it's very important that you do talk to the media. Don't ignore them. And you, you never know when uh, a, 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 a reporter is going to listen to you and, and hear something you say. Just get an, uh, a conversation going, a, you know, contact with them, that's all. Mm -hmm. Don't try to pressure them on anything. And uh, all of this leads to the, the main thing we need to do is get good people elected to office. And there are lots of tools that you can do, uh, you know, to, to prepare for that. Um, you, you need to uh, keep a good record of, of them. Uh, one of the things that I, I talk about creating is a scoring system that you're looking at your you know what policies have they put in place and score them one to ten one is total tyranny ten is freedom and uh, then you look at who voted for these things and how you know then you rate them you put that scorecard out on them you get attention their attention real quick and this can help build your operation your little organization very quickly to get a, get a, a lot of attention a lot of influence and because uh, I've never met a politician yet that wanted to be scored a two uh -huh. you know? <laughs> and uh, stuff but the other thing is begin to organize your precincts don't wait for a party to, a political party to do that but your precincts uh, th all this is is somebody in each neighborhood who gets around and know your neighbors, know who they are, uh, the ones you really want to get in the polls, the ones you don't want to get in the right. polls, uh, but to take information about candidates and that sort of thing uh, to, to watch that. The other thing that we need to do is, uh, you know, a lot of people from our side uh, who, who are, uh, you know, very conservative, we're conservative because we don't like government. We don't want massive, omnipotent government. And the problem with that is that we aren't there. We don't want to go to city council and county commission meetings. We've got a family to raise, we've got a job to do, and so forth. I hear it all the time. But the other side does. And so we've given them this totally clear playing field to go in and, uh, you know, put, uh, do whatever they want to do. And the next, the result of our disliking government to that point is we get more government.
Yeah. So, you know, we've got to be there and organize that permanent infrastructure, the freedom pot in your community. If you do this step by step, get some good people elected, it'll begin to move up. Other communities will say, how did you do that? And they'll want to begin to build the same thing. And then it can move up to the state legislature. And then that begins to affect Congress. That's how we do it from the bottom up rather from the top down. And, and how do you fight the, the pressure to take the federal money, the state money that is an incentive basically to roll out these attacks on property rights? How do you convince a city commission or a county council to say, no, we're not going to accept that, especially when you know the left-wing organizations are going to go around and say, oh, look at these clowns. They, they turned down all this free money, and we had a right to that money. How, how do you combat that? Yeah, that is a major problem, and you're absolutely right. And that is exactly how they are. They put the pressure on that this is your money, and your elected officials are depriving you of your money. Uh, the first thing to do, understand that these grants from HUD, EPA, Department of Transportation, others, a lot of these NGO organizations helped write those grants and they put in those grants very specific things. You may have a city council that wants to just get a grant to help repave Main Street because you've got infrastructure under there. Maybe it's 100 years old and they, uh, and they need new pipes, they need new wires and so forth. That's, that's an honest thought to do this, but you end up taking the grant and you find out there are all kinds of details in that grant to fulfill on it, to comply to it, that uh, d d dictates uh, maybe to put a roundabout on each end of Main Street or maybe to use certain kind of plumbing uh, codes and, and uh, building codes and so forth. You need to look into that and that's part of the research. Look at the grant. What's it say? And you get to the uh, your elected officials and make it loud and clear. This is what you're you're signing on to, and uh, you win a couple of battles like that. You can you can then get very strong in, in, in stopping them from doing that. The grants are the poison. That's how they spread the, the, all these policies on us and why every single community in the nation now starts to look alike. Mm -hmm. Nothing's local and it's because they're complying to these grants. So it, you're absolutely right. That is the, the center of it. But that's one way to do it. Get in there, find out the details and uh, send out the alert. Well, Tom, thank you so much. Um, appreciate your time, folks. It's Tom Deweese with the American Policy Center. Thank you very much. I'm Alex Newman and we will catch up with you next time. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.